Hello, this is Dr. Paul Cottrell, and I'm going to be talking about Governor Cuomo and his news briefing today. Uh, it's Wednesday. Now, <clears throat> he uh, showed the stats. Again, we have total hospitalizations starting to go down. We have total ICUs going down. We have uh, uh, total uh, intubation going down. Again, I, I mentioned that uh, doctors are reducing intubations because uh, one, not many people need them. Two, the non-hypoxia, the the non-ARD, the non-ARDS non hypoxia um, uh, paradigm is slowly being adopted. Trying to find other ways um, for oxygen. Oxy uh, providing oxygen to the patient um, instead of forced air because of Dr. because of Dr. Uh, Kyle Seidel, uh, you know, paradigm. I'll call it the Dr. Seidel paradigm, but it's the non-ARDS paradigm here. Um, so that's, that's all good news. We also have deaths. Uh, the last three days, we've had deaths go down to about the high 400s like 470 or so. So we're, instead of this, you know, the high 700s or, you know, 800 per day, now we're at 470 on average or so. So that's, you know, that's good news that that number's going down. That makes sense because uh, all those high numbers of deaths were, you know, somewhat correlated to the, the surge that I was talking about in March, uh, late March, March 26th around, around March 26th, 25th, 26th, 27th, was, was when we had the surge in, in New York City, uh, in the state of New York. So, um, so we are getting better. Um, and so all the metrics are, are showing that we are now past the peak. That doesn't mean that we're out of the woods yet. So we still have to be careful. Now, this video is more dealing with the, the issues about testing. Now, they want to do uh, t uh, further testing, maybe antibody testing. He's not really sh sure on what exactly the testing is, but he wants to institute a much larger testing program, a much larger contact tracing program in the state of New York. It would be orchestrated in the tri-state area so Connecticut, New Jersey, and New York, and it would be um, uh, further developed by Bloomberg, all right? Bloomberg is offering services to be able to trace because they have technology through Bloomberg, Bloomberg the company, Bloomberg LP, that whereby, um, they would be able to do some tracing, kind of similar to what Johns Hopkins is doing, but for the tri-state area and maybe implemented across the, the nation. But this, this brings up a lot of different issues. One, if you're working in an area, let's say you get out of shelter in place and you go back to work, and someone in your office contracts COVID-19, then everyone that's 
that's in contact with that particular per in, in contact with that particular person would have to go into quarantine. All right, they would test positive. The system would say, "Oh, who did you who who were you around the last let's say 14 days?" They would put all those people in the Bloomberg database, and then all those people would be analyzed and find out who did you contact, and all those people would be put in the database. So you have not only primary, but you have a secondary um, potential uh, contact trace. All right, they can't really do it right now because there's too many people. But as we get out of shelter in place, they're going to start implementing the contact tracing, and then they're going to they're going to start putting that in that Bloomberg database. All right. Once they do that, they're going to force the individuals that at least the, at least at the primary contact, the first degree contact, uh, would have to be sheltered in place. Maybe the secondary. It's not clear, but definitely the primary. So in this case, your coworker gets sick. If you're in, in, in anyone on your floor or anyone in your work that is associated with that person would have to be sheltered in place, probably for 14 days, all right? And then they would continue to test you. If you test positive, then, um, then you would stay in quarantine for the duration of the illness until you no longer are quote testing positive or at least you have the antibody all right so he's not he's not being clear on if it is a rt-pcr test or an antibody test or a combination so that's left up in the air but i find it very odd that bloomberg is now associated with data banking the ones that are going to be associated with the people that start to get sick, that he is building the database for the contact tracing, right? It also brings up the, the it also brings up the uh, problem whereby if you do have an antibody and you're not sick anymore, you go to work, all right? What happens when you don't have the antibody and you haven't been sick? And you're not in quarantine because you're not associated with anyone that that is sick. How do you go back to work? Do you go back to work as is, or do you have to have an antibody to go back to work? I think what will happen is, is that people that aren't sick, that do not have an antibody, will be going back to work. But once we got a shelter in place, and people start to get reinfected and they start to build up this database, the next wave of, of, of policies, at least in the tri-state area, New York, Connecticut, and New Jersey, maybe you know at a town near you, is you'll have to have the antibody. And that will be in conjunction with either something that's developed by distributive bios, who's working on antibody vaccines, or they are going to institute the messenger RNA platform which I, from Moderna, which I think is gonna happen. I think Fauci and the gang is pushing the Moderna platform. So we gotta, we, we gotta be careful on how they're slowly rolling out the forced vaccine program. 
This right here is the beginnings of it. Get out of shelter in place. People that get sick are now Gestapoed. They have a Gestapo now, you know, run by Bloomberg to track you. Not only the ones that are sick, but the ones that are in contact with the ones that are sick. All right. As they work out the kinks for that, they'll be able to now understand the, the dynamics of the reinfection wave, either the dynamics of the reinfection of the primary wave, which I said the reinfection could be primary 1.1, 1.2, where you have mini waves in between the primary and secondary wave. You might have little mini waves. Or we may have a, a larger wave, we may not have many waves, and just have a larger wave that's happening in October. All right? But I suspect that we're going to have a, little, a few infectional waves in New York once we get out of shelter in place, which I'll call them primary point one, primary point two, before we get the big secondary uh, infection wave uh, in October. That's what I, I suspect is going to happen. But during these mini waves, Bloomberg is going to be data banking you. If you get sick, you're data banked. If you're in contact with someone that was sick, you're going to be data banked. All right? Who's watching the watcher? How long does it stay in the database? What is your what you know? Uh, what sort of um, uh, privacy is guaranteed in terms of personal information? How do we know it doesn't get hacked? There's a lot of civil liberties here that we need to start talking about. All right. But this is the next step for the rollout of forced vaccine vaccines, either an antibody vaccine or this messenger RNA vaccine. So stay tuned. This is this is happening and this is happening to a, 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 a county near you. Thank you for listening and have a nice day. So uh, thank you, David, for coming on to the channel. And, um, you know, we were talking on Diamond's channel, Oppenheimer Ranch, a while back. A lot has happened since then. And uh, I want this to be an opportunity for, for my subscribers to learn a little bit about you. And then we'll talk about current events and what's going on with COVID-19, how they can prepare and whatever else that you want to talk about. So please introduce yourself. Yeah, thanks for letting me come on because there's a lot of symbiosis between what is the control mechanism and what's going to be required for this to return to normal society. And then what my channel is all about with this grand solar minimum on a, it's a solar cycle that's 400 years long compared to the regular 11 year solar cycle that we're in right now. We're at the solar minimum of the 11 year cycle. But on top of that, there's a heavier, more powerful 400 year cycle that comes along. And during this time, the same three things always happen. You get population migration, crop yields decline significantly enough where there's not enough food for the population. And then there's a complete reset of the economy along with the political and social conflict that comes along with that. And this is just historical studies. If you go back about every 400 years, and I'll even take you back to say 400 BC or 2400 years ago, there's been six iterations of this. And you see the same exact fingerprint. I call it the fingerprint and we're at it again. And this is really checking a lot of boxes. Now, the only way I ever came out to this and started looking at this was I used to be a coffee buyer in Myanmar, a place formerly known as Burma for the British. Now, they were getting cold weather damage there when I was buying coffee in 2012. 
the leaves were being burnt on the top from frost and you know actual freeze at the time the bean density declined and they were losing an enormous amount of new plantings in the field so this made me go out and look for answers as to you know for us we were looking for supply but i was global warming believer 101 everything hook line and sinker and then i started to look at the causations here of what was causing the coffee bean die off in the, the really cool times. But here's the, here's the thing that turned me on to that. Talking to the coffee farmers, they said that their grandparents had experienced the same thing. And I thought, okay, well, let's just go back in time, late 1800s, early 1900s. And then, you know, I, I started to pick up the cycle. And then from there, I, I ran into John Casey and we talked and it is a cycle. So if you know the cycles here again, how would you control the populace? Well, first you would need to control the food because you could have economy and I could give you free bars of gold and, you know, a million dollars in a briefcase net next to you. But if you're too weak or emaciated to pick it up because you don't have any food, that kilogram bar of gold is absolutely worthless to you. You can't eat it unless you could trade it for food immediately. You're going to starve. And the same thing with energy resources. I understand that oil was trading negative there for a while. It's returned back positive with the new contracts coming out, but free energy, free money, they mean nothing if you don't have food. So, you know, and then your work dovetails straight into it, the control mechanism and the ferocious and feverishness of it sweeping through the airwaves, stopping all conversation about social movement, social protest. Uh, 21 countries before this virus were asking for change at the governmental level due to reckless spending illegal government actions, uh, and just a full state of disequilibrium and shattering of the social fabric in so many countries. And now you don't see any of that on the news. It's just COVID, 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 COVID. So what is it about so much control being brought about this? And this is where I wanted to try to talk to you today, Paul. Yeah, full I'm control mechanism, you know what I mean? What is it? I just, it, it, there's gotta be a connection here with the economy, the food, and this virus, and the cycles. Right. Um, just today, Governor Cuomo is really pushing the idea of, well, we got to test for antibodies and they're going to work with Johns Hopkins. They're going to work with, uh, Vitals, uh, uh, strategies and Bloomberg and his corporation, you know, Bloomberg LP to find out who when we get out of shelter in place, who gets reinfected? And then they have a whole team that they're assembling to do the contract, contact tracing and then put it into a database. And then from there, anyone that is primary to the one that's infected would be quarantined. How long? We don't know. Maybe 14 days, maybe longer. And maybe a second degree of separate. So they're already starting to move in with this database program. I think that's the first step to when they have an antibody vaccine or the messenger RNA uh, a platform from Moderna. So there's two leading companies that I'm, I've been watching. There may be a third, but it's Moderna and um, Distributed Bios. And they, the Distributed Bios, uh, uh, does the antibody version of the vaccine. It's going to start clinical trials. And the messenger RNA platform has already started clinical trials. Fauci is pushing 
for the messenger RNA platform. So we're starting to see that at least the states, the tri-state area, New Jersey, Connecticut, New York, they're the, that was the hotbed. And they're the first ones that are starting to implement this, this database, which is that the next level of surveillance before they start doing the forced vaccinations after they've been through the clinical trials. Fauci's pushing the messenger RNA platform. I'm concerned with the messenger RNA platform that this will lead to some sort of Trojan horse down the road. Because it may work, it may produce an antibody, all right? But let's say a couple of years later, they could easily sneak something else that's tagged to that messenger RNA. Versus an antibody, you can't do that. It's hard, it, it, you can't do a Trojan horse on an antibody. Well, maybe you could, but I mean, it's much more difficult. With a messenger RNA, you just change the code really easily and it, they have that, it's conjugated. So they can have that spike protein that attaches to whatever receptor, the most affinity receptor that we have right at this moment is the ACE2, but there are other receptors and we can go into that. But, but they can, my worry is it's like two or three years down the road after clinical trials, they, they sneak in a reverse transcriptase or sneak in some other protein that does calling, the, the, you know, the calling of the population where this is, they, they, they produce the protein to, 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 to they produce a messenger RNA to develop antibodies in us to fight COVID-19 to some degree. But then later down the road, they just say, well, you need COVID-20 and 21 and 22 vaccine. You know, they do this annually now. And then after that second or third year, that's when the Trojan horse comes in. And then we'll start seeing this die off of people for some reason. You know, there's rare cancers that are taking place. This leads into something that I'm very concerned about. I, I am privy to, because people have been tr trusting me with the way I'm presenting this stuff on my channel, nurses and doctors are, are coming to me and sharing information, privy to information, right? I, I don't share it, but I have seen unique clinical presentations through the CT scans that no doubt, that early on, remember when we were hearing from, from, from China, they said that you can 90, about 95% uh, probability that you can determine that you have a COVID-19 case by just looking at the CT scan. And people were saying, well, how could that be? You're just looking for pneumonia. Well, I saw why. I know why. I mean, I've seen it. And the regular pneumonia in this is totally different. And it's, you can just, you don't even need, need to do this, this, the COVID-19 testing, the, the RT-PCR, if you're up to a certain clinical presentation. If it's bad enough and you do the CT scan and it's in the lung, then you, you can easily determine that you have COVID-19 because of the, the type of fibrotic uh, destruction that's happening in, in, uh, with, the, with the air sac. Um, but there are many people that don't have that and that's when you need the RT-PCR. But then there are some questions on, is the RT-PCR really um, testing uh, specific to SARS-CoV-2. It does if you follow a certain protocol. Some tests are only looking at one area of the genome and other, uh, uh, others are testing two or three areas of the genome. And just through probability that the more areas of the genome that you're looking for, the more probability you'll have a true positive instead of a, you know, a, fal you know, a false negative, right? So um, 
So they, so there's, there, there's a lot that's, that's going on in, in, in that space where they're, they're taking, um, you know, they're, they're building up the database that, you know, everyone's in shelter in place right now. They're trying to get or quote the, the powers that be are trying to get organized. They may know what you're, you're, you're talking about where there's this, you know, mass sh shortage of food. And there is this potentiality that this disease um, is not just an acute thing that will go away. I'm concerned that it becomes a chronic thing. And the reason being is, is that it's not just infecting the ACE2 receptor, it's infecting something called the CD147 receptor that happens to be on um, immune cells and red blood cells. So it's affecting T cells and red blood cells. This explains why the heme group is not having the correct affinity for, for oxygen because the red blood cells are infected. And uh, one of the individuals behind the scenes, uh, an MD, sharing me information that's autopsy information stating that the, C, the, the T cells, the antigen presenting T cells are highly infected and have high viral load. And the suspicion that it's coming through the CD147 pathway so this is not just a pulmonary disease, but this is a blood disease. So I'm, I'm concerned, you know, where are we at? Are we, are, are we dealing with a disease that's a, an acute disease where if we have an antibody, it goes away? Or are we dealing with something that's more chronic that's a little bit more, and I'm using the term because there's not a good term for this right now, and maybe it's a little edgy, but I'm using the term AIDS-like, meaning your immune system goes down chronically and, and these cancers will pop up or strange pneumonias pop up, just like what happened in the early 80s. You know, you had that sarcomas popping up that were rare or uh, pneumonia uh, uh, cystic um, um, you know, type, type pulmonary problems that were very unique to AIDS patients. I, it wouldn't surprise me that that happens. Now, if, if that's true, infection, um, for ones that were starting to die in 1984, they were infected around 1974, 1975. The presentations of these rare, rare, rare cancers we're about 10 years based on, for HIV-1. So we may see something happen 10 years down the road here. And, you know, there's no doubt this was, a bi this was bioengineered. And there's lots of evidence of being a, a bioweapon coming out of Fort Detrick. That the, that the, before, last time we talked, we said it was bioengineered for scientific purposes and that it was somehow accidentally leaked out of the P4 lab. Well, there was a lot of research that has come out now that I'm working with other, other um, investigators. And, and there is an, a mounting amount of evidence that there was a weapons program at Fort Detrick, um, and it was shut down in, in late 2014, and that information went over to the Wuhan facility in 2015, and the, the mezzanine doctor, that, the research doctor, was Dr. Shi. She was involved with the Dietrich program, and then she was also involved with the program at P4. We don't know exactly how it leaked out. We're thinking it was accidentally leaked out from animal 
um, handling with the primates, and somehow they were bit, or you know, you know, so, something happened, and the researchers were infected. But there was this, this there was a scientific line, and it bifurcated it around 2015, and it it went full on at Wuhan, and I I think that the Wuhan there's multiple strands. I think there. I think the Wuhan strand, what we call the Wuhan virus, that's the weapons lab. And there was a, there, there's a cover up with RATG 13. So the 13 means 2013 when it was discovered. Well, some of these nature papers, I've been kind of debunking some of these nature papers because they've been trying to suppress what was going on with the weapons program. The RATG 13, I think, is the scientific line, or one of the scientific lines. Can I jump in with a little edginess? Because you mentioned a couple of dates that kind of dovetail perfectly. I mean, the dates you mentioned are perfect matches for what I study. So I, I have a different take on it, that it is meant to call part of the population before we come into the food shortages. Because with this current 7.5 billion people, it's going to be very apparent that we won't have enough food and the controlled demolition of society the economy and the supply chains and everything in between that bring food to plate, you're going to have to be a good citizen because with the antibody test, you're going to have to get the vaccine, show your card to be able to go into purchase. Now, the first dates that we were putting at were 2023. You talked about a successive range until possible Trojan horse. Inoculations would come in there, vaccines. But that 2023 date is the integral date for you to understand. At that point, there is not enough food on this planet for everybody. Now, will it go to zero? No. But yet again, when you said 2018, 10-year onset, Valentina Zarkova, a couple of years ago, told governments to prepare for the food shortages now that were coming in 2028. She was of the volition that we would only grow 15, maybe 20% of what we're currently growing today. And it would stretch for four years from 2028 to 2032. And the carrying capacity of our earth was going to decline greatly due to exactly what these cycles have done in the past, take away our available food crops. We can't fight nature. So think of you're a government body and the sociopaths and psychopaths running at some of these global levels. We've already seen them call for global government at least three or four times to try to battle the COVID. And they do want to come up with a global governance structure after this thing ends as well. So basic universal income in the United States, you're going to have to be a good citizen to get that. So there's going to be food shortages coming up and not everybody's going to be able to get food. So if you take the vaccine and then you get your digital wallet, the new Fed coin and the IMF coin and all these other uh, national coins, actually on the 25th, China's coming out with its national digital currency. It'll be the first... And then in May, the government employees are being paid for that with that new uh, digital currency. It's the Chinese yuan, digital. So you get the universal basic income. If you're a good citizen, you'll be allowed in the store. The UBI will be deposited directly into your wallet. That'll be segregated until part of its food, part of its rent, part of its for medical. You'll have to spend it at the end of every month. So even to get into the store to be able to spend the money, you have to kato to You'll never be allowed to be in a protest. You'll never be allowed to say anything negative about how the, the government's being run. Why didn't they warn us during this time? And this is what my whole channel, Adapt 2030, is about. 
we had 20 years to get ready for this, at least. They've run us into a brick wall at 1,000 miles an hour. We're going into the obvious food shortages. You see all the meatpacking plants, they can blame it on COVID, but what if it's about throughput? Look at the low planting across China, almost no planting. We got almost no planting in Europe going on, and we got extreme late planting in the US for the second year in a row, actually third year. So the yields coming out this year are gonna be substantially less than last year, which was a dismal affair anyway. So as the food's running through the pipeline here to produce what you eat or what the animals eat, we're coming to a point where it's starting to shrink slowly. 2023 is the first dates that almost everybody in this grand solar minimum research uh, arena put at food insecurity hits our planet in 2023. So how do you control the masses? First, you got to think after 2032, like when we come out of this grand solar minimum, you're not going to be wanting to drag a bunch of sick people through this transition period. So would it behoove a world government to call them now to bring through and allow more food resources for available to, to the healthy, the genetically healthy? Because you listed an enormous amount of, of things that could be affected in the human body by this. And you have to wonder how many of them, if you're a truly healthy individual, uh, could push and keep that virus at bay versus the you know, the blood and the oxygen uptake and the, the, the lungs and everything else that we've seen through the news here and are starting to hear about with the information you're presenting. So if you wanted to reset a society under a global governance structure with half of the, as much or half as many people or half the population on the planet, you couldn't let nature wipe it out because humans being very uh, astute at coming up with ways to solve problems would change the government, there'd be no control. We would, a lot of us would probably get through this more than you think because we have higher tech, better communications, if the communications lines stayed functional. But I'm also of the, you know, of the edgy thought that it's a partial call based on the amount of food. So if you're talking 2023, and if my hypothesis is correct, we should get larger numbers of die off moving toward 2023. Something will pull back as we get a full reset through that time. Because 2024 is right where we're going to get this planetary geometry that we haven't seen since uh, it was 535 AD approximately. The four gas giants line up on the outer solar system. And when they do that, there's electromagnetic and also gravitational effects on our Earth that squeeze. There's going to be an enormous amount of earthquakes and tectonic uh, activity, volcanoes erupting, this sort of thing. We've seen nothing yet. So all this is going to take out crop production as well. So just the carrying capacity of seven and a half billion people, I'm sorry, just, there is not going to be, in my personal opinion, now that's the reason I do my research on ADAPT 2030 channel. I want you to try to do your own research and find out why is it so integral for the food to be controlled now? They want to talk about army controlling, army going out to give fertilizer and seeds and control the tractors at the point in the farms, as well as the delivery of highways and have stationed troops in every single box store, Sam's, Costco, and all this thing moving forward. These are the plans that I'm reading about. And it all hits, fits right into the 2023 through 2028 transition. And 2028 to 2032, you either have understood how to grow food in an indoor fashion or you will starve. There's no in between here. I mean, we can go toward the equatorial belt and this is another thing. Population migration, not everywhere on the planet is gonna be super slammed. There's gonna be areas from about equator to 15 to 20 north or equator 15 to 20 south. Now that whole band is gonna be not affected so much. Where it's gonna be affected is where we live, Northern Hemisphere, Europe, United States, mm -hmm. Northern China, et cetera. 
Now, with our means of, you know, we've accrued a lot of wealth in these last, you know, hundred years. There's a lot of anybody can pretty much get on a plane and move to another place if you had the gumption and if you thought you could just move down there. It's easy to get there. Well, it used to be. So imagine if you understood the way I do about this grand solar minimum and you had a billion or two billion people moving from higher latitudes down to the equatorial region, that would upset the balance anyway. So I was predicting years ago, even in the book I wrote last year, population migration would be stopped. They would lock the planet down. You would not be allowed to travel. The economy would evaporate, not implode like it is now. Full evaporation, full reset into digital currency, along with a few other means. They're going to have to do something with gold as well. And then the last thing, the incredible food spikes and the control by the military of the food from the, from the farm to the plate. And we're seeing it all happening in real time. I'm just baffled how fast it's happening. That might be a little too edgy for a call and control of the world's food population on a known cycle. So this is the thing that they don't want to admit. I would say government leaders, international banking, the elite, and these others who make laws and politicians don't want to admit to you they know about the cycle. They've known about it for, what, 30, 40 years now. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Convenient excuse, this, this virus pops up and now we get all these control mechanisms at the same time we're going into the crop losses on a 400 year cycle. I, I just can't see it being coincident. I can't, I don't believe in coincidence. Like you that. know, what's really interesting is when we were kids back in the eighties, there was a lot of underground bunkering digging, digging that was taking place. And it was under the, under the disguise of, well, it might be nuclear. You know, Russians. Maybe a, Right. Russians again, you know, but what it was is that I think they were, they were starting to plan for that day in the future where they needed to go underground and they're still doing it. They're still making it, but I, I, it started around Reagan's administration, it seems. So, um, you know, I use this term biopatriot act because, you know, I, I see this event um, eroding our civil liberties, very similar to what happened during 9-11, where the Patriot Act rolled out and we had this surveillance issue. So um, in the Bio-Patriot Act, in the way I envision it, it would have uh, decaching, which the IMF has been pushing for a long time. Um, it would have you know, a surveillance, a surveillance of the society using 5G. Um, it would have forced vaccinations, you know, erosion of our biological civil liberties. Um, there would be social scoring that's, that's taking place in the United States, very similar to what's happening in China. So I agree with you on that. Um, what is strange to me is why is the, why is the United States seem to be somewhat dovetailing with or, or working with a, this one health through uh, uh, eco, eco health alliance to, pr- it, it's a part of an agenda 21 concept, but I would think that our Pentagon, now maybe I'm being naive, but I would think that our Pentagon would know what you're saying that, that, you know, and would agree and it's trying to prepare for it, but you would think that they would be a little bit more um, focused on, protecting the nation and not integrating in a one world government that that nationhood would be paramount not and not one world integration to prepare for this 2032 or earlier event 
I'm going to say that I know somebody who is an advisor to the White House right now on this very subject. So I can guarantee unequivocally with 1000% certainty, they know what's going on. Mm. Absolutely, they do. And they've been they've known for five years. It's not, you know, this, this person that I know has been through both administrations. He knows exactly what he's talking about and he's been advising them. Now, you know, I wanted to dovetail into this here. This is a new patent from Microsoft. Mm. Patent 60606. <laughs> Cryptocurrency system using body activity data. Now, I, I, I'm one of those boring guys. I read through the whole patent actually. So what they're gonna do is, they're gonna integrate a chip or some side, of, it just says a device in your skin, under your skin. It doesn't even tell you where it's placed on the body, but I think it's gonna be in the shoulder, on the neural net or somewhere in the arm. And what it will do is, it tracks your body activity. And by doing this, then it deposits cryptocurrency into your wallet. And it, I'll read it here, a sensor, communicatively coupled to the user and may use body sensing activity. So when it goes further down in there, it talks about it's able to understand your body activity and then create a node off of this and uh, the algorithm is, opens the hash at that time based on your body activity. So for me, that goes right back into, well, you attended a protest, you threw a rock, you did something. They can tell what your body's doing by the integration here with this new Microsoft technology license LLC. And if it comes down to the tracking of the citizens, what are they really putting in these vaccines? Because if they're putting nanotechnology, like self-replicating nanotechnology in there, um, it could be any, it could be a couple part of this. Now, where do they draw the line? Okay, first you have to get the vaccine or you can't go to the store. You have to get it or you can't fly. You have to get it or you can't go back to work. Oh, now you're going to have to take the cryptocurrency new integrated like solid chip state thing and put it in your body before you can get the universal basic income and they can turn it on or off depending if you have good body action or bad body activity. Mm. So who determines what that is? And you're, that's the, the surveillance state and tracking is mm. something that's too much for me right here. I'm just a, that's a no go in my book across the board. Zero percent, zero percent, zero percent. No, 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 no. Right. I, will I mean, I, I, you know, I, I take the standpoint and maybe it's a little bit, you know, religious standpoint, but mm. you know, I take the standpoint that the body is, is a, a sacred entity. You know, it's like a temple and what you do to your body affects your, you know, your, your spiritual karma or whatever you want to call it. But, but, having having the having this idea of being tagged like an animal is like is and then tracked and then and then they say well you can't get you can't get two loaves of bread if you're bad you can only have one maybe half of a loaf of bread if you're bad you maybe know, zero or, or zero right you know it's just it, who's watching the watcher and there should be no reason why we are id'd None, zero. There's no reason. I cannot think of one reason why we should be tagged. And so, but these powers that be, you know, they want to control. They want to control us. You know, you can almost see it somewhat in the business models that are out there right now. We went. We got off of the idea of you actually buy buy a product. Now you basically lease a product. They want this never-ending annuity from you through subscription 
subscription revenue. You know, it's back in the olden days, you know, you'd buy a piece of software and if you wanted to upgrade, then you, you would buy the next version if you wanted to upgrade. Well, no, you're forced to upgrade. And then by doing that, it forces you to update your hardware because you, you run so slow on this, you know, the, you know, the latest and greatest software. So they're, they're forcing you into the subscription model, all right? This is something similar where they're forcing us into something that we really don't want. I, I, I love Apple in terms of their technology, but even with Steve Jobs, you could see that there was a roadmap if you step back and, and, and look at the whole business plan, when he came back to Apple as the interim CEO, um, you could see that they were moving everybody into something, into their platform, into their store, where you, 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 know, you, 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 didn't, you couldn't cross over to other platforms that easily, especially if you're, especially if you're a coder. So, um, you know, there's, there, they are corralling us into something. What that is, I think you're right. They're trying, they're, they're, they, they are, they're trying to control us because resources are going to be limited because of this, this solar event. And, you know, they, you know, they, they are, um, you know, they're going to flip a switch. How they flip the switch, I don't know. We're, some people die over a period of time and some people don't. How do they make that determination? I don't know. You know, is it who you know? Is it what you know? Is it your genetics that determines, you know, who dies, who doesn't? I don't, I don't know. I, it, it's scary. You know, um, what's, your what, what's your take about uh, Cheyenne Mountain and some of the Pentagon officials going, going there? You think that's well, just I think a they're precaution trying to or? Well, I personally feel they're starting to set up continuity of government because in the timelines that we had, there would have been a mass awareness this year. So let's say out of 100% of the people over the last, say, five years, the awareness of this grand solar minimum has grown to maybe, you know, 3% of the world's population. But our models and ideas and the research moving forward is going to put that around 15 to 18% this year. By the end of this year, when we come into the harvest season, come up around Christmas, Thanksgiving, and that would have had a huge shift in society. A lot of people would have been asking questions because these are the forward thinkers, the people who read a lot, generally the people at higher levels, management level and above in companies that have the spare time to be able to read and research. It's not the, the person who's working 70 hours a week at minimum wage to be able just to scrape by. They don't have the time to do all the reading. There would be a definite upward movement of the awareness of this grand solar minimum. And then by 2022, it would have been upwards above 50% of the world's population. So something had to have been done. And I was always wondering what this would be. Now, the continuity of government, if they knew it was this close in at, at the end of this year of global awareness anyway, we're already six months into the year almost, you would be setting up and starting to get everything ramped up. It's like, you know, uh, a power plant. You can't just flip the switch. It takes a couple two to a good week or more, almost two weeks to get that thing up to full capacity if you're going to steam ahead with it. Mm -hmm. So think about that. It's not everywhere going underground. It's certain locales. So I would say they're the forward station, like the forward base that's getting up and operational. And then others would dovetail and follow behind it. Or 
there truly is something that they can't control that got let out and they're running there to try to still keep the government intact. But I was saying that they're always, they're all going to run away at this time. Uh, elite, especially. And you start to see the number of CEOs that are retired over this last year, something like 1400 top level of the top, top. You're talking about fortune 500, fortune 1000, at least CEOs, CFOs, COOs of all those companies have retired over this last, um, year. An unbelievable number, a staggering number of CEOs have retired. It makes you wonder why. Mm -hmm. So somebody at these higher levels know, and you're just getting an enormous amount of people running away at this time that are the ones who created the society in terms of the way economics finance has moved through. Now, perhaps they were given advance warning, go to go down to New Zealand to get in your bunker now, but you can't tell me the government's running. The individual elites are running. And everybody seems to be at home now without any culpability. See how convenient the excuse is? Oh, shelter in place, shelter at home. You, they could have a fake backdrop. You don't know where they are. They could have already been in all their bunkers. And everything you're seeing is a facade because the technology today is so good that we would not know a fake if we landed on Mars or if a person's sitting in their room or if they're at an office with the backdrops seamless now. So is everybody really where they're supposed to be or are they in completely different places and you know, setting up with all this remote work. We're never going back to the same office structure again. So these heads of offices, CEOs, they'll never have to go back. And this gives a lot of leeway and movement for people to just disappear without even a question being asked. So when we see across the board, governments, military, entertainers, elites all bailing out at the same time in the same year, that's eh, a clue that something else might be going on. And I do believe the government's staging and getting ready for continuity of government during these shifts. I would say the food shortages are inbound right now. And uh, you're definitely going to see it in a few months. On It's not going to be a, a, you know, down to zero where you're going to be like eating grass like they did in the Cultural Revolution. It's not going to be that bad in the beginning, 2028 perhaps, but in these first few years. And again, if you only have enough food to feed six people and there's 10 people waiting at the door and you're going to reset a government, which four would you decide that or not? You don't want their thinking. You don't want their philosophies. You don't want anything to contaminate the other six that could be brought through to the other side. Would it be the ones who are starting up protest movements or the ones who question authority like yourself and I, and I do as well? We question the official narratives. Would we be the ones allowed in or would they reverse that and be like, You're the, you guys are the independent thinkers. We want you in here. Did you, hear, did you hear the story? So, so food was starting to run short in Tribeca. This is, that's where I go for Whole Foods to, to get, you know, get my food. So there was a food shortage. And uh, the first filming with uh, Mike Adams that I had, I do a weekly show with Mike Adams. Yeah, I like Mike. I'm a fan. I, I go to his website frequently. It's great so, stuff. Mike yeah. Adams, Natural News, amazing. So I was telling him about the food shortages, that, that produce was starting, fresh produce was starting to be sold out. Your meats, your, um, you know, the beans were gone, the uh, pastas were gone, the, 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 the rice, all that stuff was gone. So he felt bad. So he sent me a bunch of food because <laughs> he has a farm, you know, and then, you know, so, and, and, you know, he, you know, and he has oats and stuff. And so he, he sent me a bunch of, you know, a bunch of nuts, uh, almonds, you know, organic almonds and, and, and oats and stuff. So I, I was very appreciative, but uh, you know, I think, I think the main point is, is that we need to find a way to grow our own food. 
um, it's, it's a problem for people like myself where you're living in a metropolis like New York. It's not, I mean, yes, you could do a little bit out of your, out of your home, you know, against the window, but you really need some land to be able to feed your family. So I, you know, what do you suggest? I mean, how do, how do, how do people prepare for this? I mean, the government is going to be there for us. I mean, they want to kill us. They're trying to kill us. I mean, let's just face it. They're trying to kill us. So what do we do? You know, people watch um, Green Greggs, you know, with the micro green, you know, concept. Um, but, you know, when, when push comes to shove and, so, you know, the, the mother starts to see her, her kids starving and they have a family of four and they're living, let's say, in suburbia, what do they do? They come for yours. If you have, and they know you have, they're coming for yours. Don't, don't even delude yourself to think that we're going to keep our society functioning the way it is. When there's a food shortage, everything's out the window. You saw how quickly virus made everything go out of the window. You thought right now things were not, on the scale of remoteness of possibility, everything that's happened during this virus time is so far, it wouldn't even have been on the scope. You would have said that is such an impossibility. That's not even one millionth of a percent possible or a billionth percent possible that the global economy would be crushed and everybody would be locked in within weeks, not years. So you can see how things or how quickly things can shift. Now you are going to have to grow your own food. And if you are prepping, please keep it a secret because that hungry mother will pick up that loaded firearm and come and get your food. Don't kid yourself. Mother will always protect children except if you're going to an abortion clinic where it's the opposite. Because I'm, I'm fascinated by nature. You know, talking about growing your own food, I'm really fascinated because we trap a lot of stuff out here because we trap the squirrels, the possums, and the raccoons that are coming by. We don't kill them, we put them in a safe trap, and then we take them about five miles from here. But the ferociousness of those animals to defend their young is just, in nature, we as a species are the only one that do away with our young. It's unbelievable. But going out into nature, you see everything's protected. They try to, because it's so difficult to live in nature, things die. You ever try to plant your own food? You, you're lucky if you get 50% of it coming out. You plant 100 seeds, you get, uh, you'd be lucky if you harvest 40 or 50 of those. It's about practicing. It's about getting on larger parcels of land. And I am dumbfounded why we don't use the roofs of all these you know, buildings you're talking about to grow food in a city setting. Because think about this, well, let's take New York, for example. I talked about Taipei and Hong Kong and a few other cities in Asia before. If you were to use every single rooftop of all these large buildings to grow food, you know, that's literally, that would be square miles of food forest, dense, micronutrient, incredibly productive, and each building can take care of its own. That's only a smidgen, you know, you understand that. We got the indoor vertical agriculture, we could convert uh, disused shopping malls, which there's a lot right now. Uh, parking garages, again, we don't use, use those as much as we used to. But even transitioning every disused shopping mall and commercial space and parking garage in America into vertical agriculture, even with super efficiency and hydroponics and aeroponics systems, it's still only gonna be a fraction of really what we need to feed the populace. So it's gonna come down to you getting on a larger piece of land and understand the transitions here. We're never going back to the same way we were. And if you can get a piece of land outside the city, because as things continue to constrict, I mean, you're talking about New York, every day I'm going to turn on the news, they're saying, well, another few months, another this, more control. So at what point do they start putting up walls in the cities? 
Now, this is my next thing is, you know, will it turn into an East Germany type of thing to keep control in these places and you only bought in with your digital chip? And if you don't, by that time, uh, you know, the outside world will have evolved. And I really see a dissection or a movement and a, a morphing, a splitting of society here into those who know how to grow food and will make the transition into the countryside. And those that will stay in the cities and get in more into the transhumanist, you know, augmented, I wouldn't even say reality, but augmented lifestyle where there are chips and, and you know, neural links in your brain and all these other things within your body, mm -hmm. nanotech. I think we're at the divergent point here in human species. We're going to split into another species. So if you have a chance to get out and start growing your own food, practice with it. It is difficult to grow food. Don't let anybody tell you, oh, it is the casino food. Microgreens on a tray, that's really easy. But putting something out in the, in the ground where slugs, snails, butterflies, worms, caterpillars, animals, birds, tornadoes. Tornadoes. Anything else, yeah, and anything else can get on it and then go have fun and see how much you really get. Especially it's something succulent and delicious that you want to eat. Everything else out in nature wants to eat it too. So the largeness and where you are, uh, you know, it's all about getting out and getting land again. Because here over where I'm at, I'm in Northeast Tennessee. The, the property values of land in the countryside and the farm actually went up during this time, not down. But in the city, they can't sell anything. So you look around property values, on the real estate websites, everything is here been 55 days, 63 days, 75 days hold when you go to realty sites in neighborhoods or downtown. But on the farm country, the, you, you can find a 275 acre parcel, but that's kind of what's left after everybody gobbled up the 10s, 20s, 50s, and 30 acre parcels that were there with barns and horse stalls and all these other things. You know, you can get the container homes out there. Right now, the prefab container homes are so you know, they're so wiretight, you can get those out there, snap them together and have a living residence within a month or even less with all the utilities and everything. Get the solar, get, you got running water, you got the uh, springs out there and, and you can get really self-sufficient quickly, but you need to practice and land is going fast. So understand the premiums on farmland are now just like silver. You need to pay a four or $5 premium over on an ounce or three bucks at the minimum or 350 is the lowest I've seen anywhere. At that point, you're paying in some places, it's, it's the same thing with land. There's a premium on it now for something that that's valuable that can you grow food and keep your family alive and get out of the mix too. Like where our, we, where our farm is, it's over a little range in a valley between the next range that's on a national park border side. So even if you get back in there, there's no road to even go into the national park, kind of ends in the valley and that's where it ends. You can take a side road and come back out the other way back over the small range going back out, but that's it. We wanted to be as remote as we could, and we have a city house, and we just come back and forth. You might mm -hmm. think about that too. Remoter land location to grow, and then have something in the city to still uh, make the living and you know, do the video production, at least for me and what you're doing there in your practice. So you gotta think about how you could divide the time or uh, the resources that you have with the time we have left. Right. I'll stop rambling there. I could go on no, forever about you that. You know, when I was living in Michigan, you know, a lot of people in automotive did something similar. But they always had a cottage up north. They would buy some land, maybe, you know, two, three acres or so. And they would, you know, build, build a cottage. And usually it was off the water or off of a lake or a river or something. And you do fishing or you do some hunting or something like that. And, you know, you, you know. But that was really, you'd go up there maybe, maybe no more than six times a year. 
you know, maybe long weekends, you know, three, four day weekends type, type thing, you know, five or six times a year. So you don't really utilize it that much. Um, and then right when automotive was starting to kind of crash and they were shipping out the jobs out of Michigan, uh, people were starting to sell those cottages and, you know, it was just, you know, vacant. But I can see the last 20 years or so, there was, there, there's been a, maybe a little bit more than 20 years, but there's been a promotion and I kind of bought into the idea, move into a high density area like New York, Chicago, that, you know, that's where the nightlife is. That's where, you know, the action is. But it, it was, a, it, it was, it was, there was a, that was a fallacy, right? Because what I found out was that your, your health is worn down in a city. You don't sleep as well. It's too loud. It's polluted. The pee, the, there's, there, there's a lot of riffraff that's walking around. And I actually miss that Michigan environment that I had, you know, of suburbia. And I'm kind of tired of this, you know, metropolis, New York kind of environment. And this idea that the best and the brightest are in New York is total BS, total BS. You know, same thing. The best and the brightest aren't from Goldman Sachs. And, you know, you know so when I was managing, uh, I was professionally managing a portfolio for a nonprofit in, in, in New York. So part of the, not, part of, we had uh, Goldman Sachs come in to do a, a to do a quote, to do a presentation and determine if we were going to cut, carve out some of the, portfolio and you have Goldman Sachs actually manage it, actively manage it through their quant loans. And they did their presentation. And we determined not to do that. Not, you know, because we didn't believe anything that Goldman Sachs was saying. Because it was so the way they orchestrated, so polished, even they even have people that come in, they 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 analyze who their client is. And then they they pick people that have similar ethnic backgrounds to the CEO of whoever the client is, mm. you know, or in our case, he, in our case, it was a nonprofit. It was a religious nonprofit. It was, it was Catholic charity. So the Archdiocese of New York. So they pick someone in, and Monsignor Sullivan is Irish. So they made sure that whoever the sales guy was from Goldman Sachs was Irish and had, you know, had the accent and everything. So it's it's so polished and so contrived that it's it's it there's there's no genuineness to it. But they think that you know because they had a bunch of psychiatrists or psychologists say that this is the way to close the deal, you know, to build that camaraderie, and it it didn't work. I mean, it, it was very obvious, and we just kicked them out. But you know, but the point here is is that the best and brightest aren't in New York. You know? But but but. Um, I do miss going back to, I, I think the future of the country uh, isn't in the East Coast or the West Coast. It's in middle America. It's in that Midwest. It's in that, it's in that, that's where, that's where America is, is, is going to stay strong. Now, you know, are we, do you, do you think going through this time, going through this period of time where the food, it, there's food shortages. Is it, is it an increased glaciation? 
you think that there's we're, that these northern states are are going to have uh, glacier advancement, or we're just that's not going to happen? Well, if you're talking about the Laurentide Glacier, where something's under two miles of ice like Chicago, for example. Mm -hmm. No, we're not going to get there. But absolutely, the growing seasons are going to be more in flux or discombobulated. They're going to get a, like we're seeing now, it's, it's staying really cold all the way into May, and then there'll be a blizzard coming in September. So the growth seasons are going to continue to shrink. And there's also going to be out of place storms, cold events that are going to destroy crops after we thought we've already beat the last frost date. Farmers are going to put some things out and look for it. There's going to be an unusual uh, uh, amount, just like happened in Europe already. There was a really warm spring. All the fruit trees had come out and already flowered, not even budded, but flowered. And then, you know, three or four weeks later, here comes a super hard freeze for four days, dropping feet of snow, uh, gusting sideways winds at 60, 70 miles an hour with ice in the beginning that ripped all the the flowers off the trees and everywhere from Spain all the way to Croatia was devastated, lost almost all fruit production for this year. We've seen this the last couple of years happening as well. But the full, you know, will some glaciers grow? Yes, Glacier National Park, as a matter of fact, they had to take down the sign at the visitor center that said these glaciers will be gone by 2020 due to global warming. And then now the glacier reads, well, these glaciers will be gone sometime in the future because of man-made climate change. Mm. Well, that was a big statement to say it'll be gone by 2020 and then it actually advanced. That's the whole thing. It didn't stop, it advanced toward the visitor center. And then they, they suddenly, Houston, we have a problem with the narrative here. So it's all about the food in my opinion. You know, you're gonna have to start to learn so, how to grow the food. So a lot of people that are living in Canada are gonna have a big problem. They're gonna really get frozen out. And look at, you know, Paul, excuse me for a second. Uh, if you want to do, like you said, in the Midwest, follow the old rail lines to see where people were initially colonizing or uh, homesteading out here in the U.S. Tennessee Valley, Midwest, right? You just follow, go do a history lesson. If you don't know much about American history, reverse it a little bit back into the late, I'd say late 1700s, early 1800s, and then really get where the rail lines are at. Because with Warren Buffett and all that group of their investors with uh, Berkshire Hathaway, they bought up and they own 85% of all the railways in America. So what did they know? A, they're in a cash position, the hugest ca a massive cash position ever on this planet in a single uh, hand right here to pounce on something. And then at the same time, over the last four or five years, they've become the largest rail holder. So they must know something about going back to using rail for delivery. So if you're along a rail line or a terminus of a rail line, or you know where you know, the depots are, I really believe we're going back to rail delivery here too, because if the trucks aren't going to be running, either due to too many people sick, we can put it on a train. It takes one healthy driver to run a, a mile long train of cars down to the next place and uh, do a history lesson. Uh, yeah, you were, you were laughing when I said that, but you know what I mean? No, I, yeah, you have it exactly right because, because of the cycles, it's what our ancestry has done. You know, what, what our ancestors did. Where, where did they go? What was the climate like 150 years ago? What did they do? And it, because of these cycles, we're going to have to repeat it. Uh, I totally, it, it, you know, what's interesting about Warren Buffett is he always seems to win. And anyone that's traded, you can't win all the time. It doesn't work that way. Right? So 
this guy has got inside information. He trades on it, all right? He just hasn't been caught yet. So that or he has so much money that he moves the market. He's, he's a whale and he moves the market, which is possible. But when he bought those rail lines, he used it under the, the guise of, well, that we're going to use a lot of coal. The, the economy is going to you know, be very vibrant. So there's going to be a lot of coal use. So he needs to ship the coal. And there's going to be a lot of goods going in and out of the country, especially coming from China. And that you're going to have to use shipping lines for that. So that's why he used them. But it wouldn't surprise me that he is privy to stuff that you're talking about, where the, you know, the elites are preparing for, you know, to, to capitalize on this, this particular event and that they saw that this was happening here. But he's ahead of an age now because you don't know if he's going to die six months from now or not. I mean, he's, I mean, he could easily have a heart attack, you know, or a stroke. And he's relatively healthy, but I mean, he's at an age that any day he could die. Um, so, you know, why does he put so much effort in, you know, to this, to this plan? I don't, I, that I don't, I don't, I don't understand. Same, same thing with Soros. You know, he, he's at an age where why has he put so much of his effort in, you know, promoting this, you know, one world agenda? Yeah, well, they don't get their adrenochrome if they don't keep katoing. Now, I don't even know if that stuff's real. You know, I'm sure somebody was thinking about that, right? What is that adrenochrome stuff real or is that, or is that, you know, because that goes right in with the oldest of the elite that are hanging around on our planet still is they're getting their adrenochrome and that's why they keep doing what they're doing. Right, you know, maybe well, that, I, <laughs> I might well, be you know, what's interesting, you know, what's but, interesting, I, 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 one, of, one of the first classes that I took in my master's program at Harvard was a stem cell, stem cell class. And uh, there are, there is a lot of evidence that when you grow older, you're accumulating um, uh, certain proteins that are aging proteins. And if you take mice and you take an older mouse and you hook up the this, this circulatory system to between a young mouse and an older mouse, the older mouse will get certain, certain proteins to help reduce the aging proteins that are in the circulatory system of the older mouse. And the older mouse will actually, at least at the serum level, will start to anti-age. So there's, there's evidence. So there, you know, the idea is that is, there's been some talk, well, people drink blood or have blood transfusions. At the lab level, I've seen it work in animals where young blood in an older body makes the older body younger. So, and then, you know, then, then there's some talk of, well, um, if you scare an animal or you scare a child and you, and that is creating, uh, um, you know, the uh, certain hormone levels and you kill it, that, and you put that blood in, that it, it gives you a certain level of, of energy because you have these, you have higher cortisol levels and you have all this other stuff. So, you know, so there is this, there's some, there is some research out there that states that by taking blood from the young 
or scaring the young and taking the blood from them um, can make the older individual live longer. Yeah, really interesting, especially with the uh, amount of people that go missing every year. Mm -hmm. That's too woo woo. No, That's too woo no, woo. No, no. I'll stay. I, I, no, I'll tell you what. I think there's definitely some sort of program out there, you know, in the underground that are stealing children. Because when we were kids, we start we we were seeing on the milk cartons all the time missing Johnny, missing Judy, missing you know. All, I mean, it was like every day. Now you don't have that anymore, but I mean, I remember as a kid in the seventies, there's just constantly seeing children be you know going missing where did they go there can't be that many serial killers that are just crazy you know there was there was some program out there to, to i think that that were that was um, rounding up children now did they kill the children or did they harvest the children somehow i don't know i know it sounds a little strange but there is there is biological evidence on young protein in the blood providing vitality to people that are older. You know, it's kind of like um, um, vampirism, you know, you know, the concept, oh, I need to drink your blood so I can live. That's something very similar. Yeah, because, uh, you know, around here in the Southeast US, uh, local news stations are reporting that there's an enormous amount of homeless that are disappearing right now too finding their carts all over the place and you know i guess the cart is that person's life and when you have you know a whole bunch of shopping carts lined up that used to be utilized by the homeless just abandoned one night and they keep finding this again and again now this is from the southeast us and might be happening or maybe not in other places but it seems that with all this if you're talking about population reduction or whatnot into the food minimum here and grand solar minimum crop losses uh, are those people being rounded up and taken for labor or, you know, what I, is it? I think, har I think harvesting, organ, organ harvesting. Oh, you do? Because I know in China they do that. And, I mean, it wouldn't surprise me because I, I you know, I, maybe someone that is in, in, in transplants could disprove this concept. I don't know if there's a whole lot of data, tracking data, when an organ comes on board for transplantation. How do they know where it came from? You know, because and, I, can you correct me if I'm wrong? Uh, you know, because the the organ harvesting and uh, surgery, you know, machine going on over in China. How about Chinese genetics for us to get a heart from China? You know, I don't know if it would genetically match so perfectly. So, well, as someone that goes into that's a specialty transplantation is 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 a is a is a, uh, um, a surgical specialty that you have to spend many years, you know, training for, but you're on immune suppressants for the rest of your life. You can't just throw that in. You can't just throw that organ in and it, because you get high percentage of rejection. So you have to go on to these immune suppressants. So, um, but they do test for, uh, Matt, you know, they, there is some level of matching blood matching, anti you know uh, antigen matching to try to reduce the level of autoimmune rejection of the of the of the transplantation um so but as long as you have though you know somewhat of a, a matching of those antigens you know someone that's caucasian 
could still get someone that has, let's say, an Asian kidney, like, you know, the donor's an Asian that's giving a kidney and I, let's say, needed it. And we had enough of a match. Let's say our blood matched and we had enough of, you know, other matching markers. I'd, I could take the kidney and, um, but I would still have to be on immune suppressants for the rest of my life. But there's others, they may have certain antigens or a different blood group that it, it's, it, 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 there's a high probability that it would regret, reject. And so they wouldn't do it. Yeah, the reason I brought that up is because with all this tracking and with all this uh, you know, genetic information that they're gonna have about you, and even to take it down to their most ridiculous thing I've seen all week in Dubai, in the UAE, they were taking everybody's blood at the waiting gate there to get on an aircraft and do that 10-minute test to see if people had. But this makes no sense to me because, you know, coronavirus, the antibodies are in all of us because it's just a flu strain. So what, it's like 25 of them? So everybody literally on the planet is going to test positive for this if they're going to do an antibody test for coronavirus. I, I'm sure everybody had the flu at least once or twice in their entire life. Had to have. It's just a normal part of growing up and being a kid, going to school. But um, I'm wondering well, we how do, much we, of we, this is tracking that, to yeah. see if you're going to be harvested in the future. Now, again, that's a little woo-woo, but there's so much genetic tracking. I don't know why they want everybody's genetic material other than to start matching something like this. The only well, I, think, I, th I, I think it's less sinister than that. I think okay. I've, done, I've, done a, I've done a little bit of, um, of writing on uh, genomics. I wrote a book on genomics. And this was based on my coursework in genomics at Harvard. And uh, there's something called GWAS. So what, what it basically is, is that you take a genome, a series, a, a series of diseases and a series of genomes from different individuals. And you're, you're, you're able to correlate, but you, it, you correlate, but it doesn't prove causation, correlate certain genes to certain diseases. But it's big data. You got to have a lot of data, all right. So, you, so they're. I think what they're doing is they're building a database of genomes to be able to have more, uh, a higher resolution of the GWAS investigation, genomic-wide um, uh, disease association, right? To determine well. If you have these types of genes, you'll be associated with these types of diseases. And it's not just one. What they've noticed is it's very rare to have just one gene issue. Many diseases, it's like 40 genes that are related. And it depends on the epigenetics. It's not just the genome. It's if the gene is turned on or off. So you could have the gene, but it's turned off because of methylization. So... So, you know, it, it's, it's, you need a big, big database. So it wouldn't be, it's very easy to take those nasal swabs and not, you know, especially the ones that went to the CDC, but to take these nasal swabs and be able to separate viral DNA or a viral RNA in this case, since some, some viruses have DNA, but in this case, it's RNA. So viral RNA and separate it to your actual somatic cell DNA and they could genomically sequence your DNA and store it just as easily as they can isolate the RNA from the virus and sequence that. So, you know, if you're doing, that's why 
I don't recommend doing that 23andMe or you know any of that Ancestry.com uh, genome thing because they're data, they're data banking and they'll take that data and then they'll sell it. They'll take that the genomic data and they'll sell it to pharmaceutical companies and the pharmaceutical mm. companies will start to see okay they'll do these GWAS studies that I was talking about okay what genes and it, it's really for um, precision medicine where it's like okay these types of genes work better with these types of medications or these types of genes uh, are associated with these types of of diseases and it just so happens that these individuals would uh, uh, have complications with these types of of medications. So what it does is it it narrows the field when they're doing the clinical studies. They figure, okay, which compound should we actually test for? Because it costs billions of dollars to do this. So they go, okay, we got compound A, B, C, and D, but our GWAS study says D has the highest probability of success based on the GWAS study. So they go with D. And then they, 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 they put it in the clinical trial and hope it works. So they need a big, big database to do this. So I, I think that they're, they're trying to collect the data and sell the data to pharmaceutical companies. S similar, similar in a way where you have um, Facebook taking your posts and, and uh, selling that information to marketers to do targeted marketing. So uh, they're just, in this case, they're, they're selling your genome to target market clinical trials. I wonder if they could prism that out a little more. Like if I was, if government was really working for us, they could have what well, you're talking about, subset D and body type A, subset C and body yeah. type B, mm -hmm. and start to match them for the mm -hmm. most targeted result based on. Yeah. You got it. Well, in a, in a utopian kumbaya world where the government was truly there to help you and pharma was truly there to help you and cure you, not extract every dime until you hit the grave, well, maybe that would be a possibility, but sounds good on paper. Well, you know, the reality of the situation is it's not just taking the genome. It's also, it's the epigenetics and it's the proteomics. So to really do it right, you almost have to take and this is almost impossible at this stage of the game. You almost have to take a tissue sample from each area of the body and analyze the, the, what, what genes are on or off for that individual in those tissues. All right. And then you may be able to make an association with certain diseases because the disease may be attacking certain tissues more than others. Like in this case, COVID-19, we saw that it attacks more often the lungs than other tissues, but other tissues are involved. So what, what is the methylization that's taking place in those uh, a, a, uh, AT2 cells in the lung versus let's say uh, ACE receptor cells that are in the myocardium? They're gonna have a totally different methylization because they're different cells but they all have the same genome. So it, it's, it, you do have to get really granular, but we don't, have, we don't have the database yet capability to, to collect that level of data for each person. 
because we have lots of different cells, lots of different tissues. So we have the same genome, lots of different methylizations that, that are transient over time. What's methylated when you're young versus when you're older are different. And then not only that, over time, let's say within, this, within 24 hours, you have different concentrations of protein, right? And they degrade. And if you're healthy, you may be producing a certain type of, of protein in that cell. And if you're sick, you may not be pr producing the same concentration, but it's transient. So, you know, we don't have a database for every person that shows the transients of the, of the proteomics of each of the tissues. You can, you, can ex you can see in your mind, you know, how this explodes out with data. You know, I mean, it's, you're talking not in the, not trillions of, not in the terabytes. It's, it, what's the next level of terabyte? I don't even know what the next level of terabyte is. Uh, no, not hectabyte. I don't um, know, but it's like, it's that and one other. That's the level of data. Petabyte. petabyte. It's, it's beyond petabyte. If you're, you're, you're truly the data bank, one individual of the genome, which is relatively easy, but then all the methylization for all the tissues and all the proteomics that are going on for all the tissues. You're talking a huge amount of data just for one person, but that's, that's what you really need. But we're no way near that because they would have to test hourly for all these tissues to understand the transientness of the proteomics. So when it'll come in, okay, so you have to get the vaccination the verse, this first time. You can only come in the morning in the 2021. You can only come in the afternoon, and then they start to break it out like that. Right. Next one, you can only come at lunchtime. Right, right, right. But, you know, I, so they're not going to be collecting proteomic data, and they're probably not even collecting um, epigenetic information. But they can do quite a bit with the genomic data. And, you know, and that's where the research is right now. It's, it's genomic and it's uh, GWAS, using GWAS to, 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 um, to do precision medicine. And those databases, people are willing to spend big bucks to get those databases because they can save a lot of money you know, for, for targeting to be able to say, okay, let's not use this drug because we're going to lose a billion dollars. Let's use this drug because the database is saying that we have a higher probability of success. So that's big money. They'll, they'll spend hundreds of millions of dollars for the database because they could save a billion dollars. So then it need, the question needs to be asked, if you're going to be able to access precision medicine and clean, healthy foods moving forward, what kind of hoops are we going to have to jump through? What's going to be expected of you from government in terms of sacrificing liberties or intrusion into your body for you to be able to access these two main things that we need? Why is there such a demonization right now of anything that's a nutraceutical? Right. They're already right. talking about, and you know, right before we talked, you know, we were talking about the, the diet in India, you know, gala and gal and, you know, Southeast Asian cooking with the different kind of coconut oil fats. And we got the turmeric and you can't talk about that. I, it's, it's so sad. I mean, and that just came out on, on, on YouTube, the, the CEO or the head of marketing. Um, was stating that if you talk about vitamin C or turmeric as a, as a means to boost your immune system, to fight pathogens, that they're gonna you know, view that as 
content that it that is not um, uh, accepted by the WHO protocols or something like that, and and therefore they're going to take it down. You know, that's fake news. And the thing is, is that my great my grandmother, all right, whenever we were sick, it had to be matzo ball soup and mm -hmm. lots of garlic. And she was Romanian, so you know, but lots of garlic. And she was the type that if you were sick, she did it where she would wear garlic around her neck. So it was, you know, she was really old school. You know? So, but, but I, but people do know that certain types of uh, produce have natural antiviral properties. And this has been known for a long, long time. I mean, it makes sense. Garlic is growing in the ground and it's around microbes. So there, there, there are viruses and bacteria and, and, and funguses that it has to fight to stay alive. So it's built up uh, uh, um, antiviral properties through just natural selection. So when we just take garlic or onions and chop it and activate those enzymes, when we break those, cell, those, cell, those cells and activate those en enzymes, and we chew it, we're getting the benefits of natural selection that are antimicrobial. But you say that on YouTube, and they're going to say, well, that's not approved by the WHO. Don't eat our garlic, because you, just make sure you take your remdesivir and make sure you take your messenger RNA platform, you know, vaccine. Well, wait a minute. I, I, grandma had a lot of wisdom. You know, so I mean, and so I, I just, they're trying to control us more and more and more. And then you've even seen what happened with uh, nanosilver and colloidal silvers. Uh, nanosilvers and colloidal silvers have been known to kill pathogens because they disrupt, you know, they disrupt the uh, glycopro, they, they disrupt the, uh, the glycoprotein that's on, on, um, on certain types of bacteria and certain types of viruses. So by disrupting it and changing the conformation a little bit, it can't lock in to the receptors. So I started taking uh, uh, colloidal silvers uh, back three, four years ago. The moment I felt sick, a little tingling in the throat, bam, I, I took it, it was gone. It was gone. The stuff works. It's, it's antimicrobial. You know, and there's literature on this where you take it in vitro literature, you know, where you, you take petri dishes of, of different pathogens or cells that have been infected by, by pathogens, and you, you start seeing um, those cells no longer having those, um, those uh, pathogenic attacks. Um, I, did a pay, I, did, I did a video on uh, terpenoids and lignoid paper. Um, and described, you can purchase certain things that are at, at a, at a uh, nutraceutical store, a health food store, that are antiviral, that have been proven, proven in research to be a protease inhibitor for coronaviruses, beta coronavirus. There's different types of coronaviruses, for, for beta coronaviruses. And the reason why they work is that there is a 3CL protease that is conserved in the genome for all beta coronaviruses. 
So it's conserved enough that even with SARS-CoV-2, you can use these new nutraceuticals. And it so happens birch bark extract is one of them that, that will bind to the 3CL and prevent viral replication in the cell. So, I mean, for the, for the WHO and for YouTube to say that vitamin C is bad for you and turmeric is bad for you and garlic's bad for you and, and you know, all these other you know, antiviral compounds have been known to be very beneficial for people uh, is pushing an agenda to get us one sicker and to be put on these, these protocols, you know, either, you know, uh, you know, a remdesivir protocol or a hydroxychloroquine protocol or, you know, a, a uh, vaccine protocol. If people, were, if, if people were well and they didn't get the virus, it would be hard for them to push this, this uh, forced vaccination agenda. Because people would say, why am I taking it? No, no, you know, I'm not sick. Why, you know? But the problem is, is that we have a bioweapon that's been released, how it was released, I don't know, that is very deadly. And I'm really concerned about the latency. What happens down the road? Because I, I do think that we're gonna start seeing rare cancers that pop up um, that is very similar to what we were seeing in the 80s with AIDS. You know, a whole list of things you surely do not want to look at that might help that you shouldn't even look at this list here uh olive leaf right. uh, licorice root right cat's claw and uh, echinacea you shouldn't look at those because right. those won't do you any good right i mean it's like you know i just they're, they're out, of, out of control and even marigold zinc, extract even, even just the, just zinc and and chaga and tea maybe, no yeah. good yeah right right and the tea different <laughs> teas don't look at the chaga. That one. Don't look at the chaga. Right. Right. Sorry to cut you off, Paul. No, no. But you're you're absolutely right. We have so much out there that are that is that are that is accessible to the average person. You don't need to see a doctor, and you can have this as a as a daily protocol for anti aging. It's not just when you're sick, because if you reduce your if you reduce the number of times that you're sick then you don't have all these pro-inflammatory responses that age you. The people that are sick all the time chronically, you'll see, it, you'll see a pattern. They age quicker. People that aren't chronically sick, they don't age as fast. So if you take things to help with um, uh, you know, cofactors for your enzymes, so you have better metabolism, better, better uh, uh, metabolic pathways and stuff, your body is going to have more energy. You're going to produce more ATP. If you have an unhealthy uh, mitochondria, you know, if you have an unhealthy um, uh, ATP production in your, in your cells, you're going to feel worn down. You're not going to have the energy. But when you do have, when you have that mitochondria um, health, uh, you're going to produce high levels of ATP. And with that, that will you know boost your ability to fight pathogens when you get there because you need atp for all your processes because it's transferring that phosphate group to activate kinases and those kinases are activating other processes or turning you know turning apoptotic you know processes off you know there's a whole orchestra 
orchestra of things that are going on. But when you're, when, when you're not producing enough ATP, you can't allow that machinery to work. The currency of the currency of the, of the, of the cell is ATP. So when we get older, we're not producing as much ATP. So you have to find ways to boost them up, to help boost up your mitochondrial health. So like NMNs uh, uh, help boost up sirtuins, and that helps to um, maintain um, proper mitochondrial health. And a lot of people don't realize that even when we get older, you know, people go, well, you know, they're not thinking as well. Well, part of the reason is, is that you need a lot of mitochondria to produce those ATPs to start releasing those neurotransmitters. So when, when you're older, around the, uh, the, the cleft of the, of the neuron, you, th those, those uh, mitochondria start to die off. You don't have as many. Well, if you start, if you start on a protocol like NMN, there's others, but you know, PQQ and CoQ10, they'll boost up your, your ability to maintain or produce more mitochondria. And that will give you more ATP, and then you'll start shooting more neurotransmitters. And you'll, people will say, well, wow, you know, when I've been doing this antioxidant protocol you know, uh, you know, for the last couple of years or whatever, I'm really thinking better. Well, that's the reason. You just got more mitochondria that's producing ATP. You know? so, but they don't want you to know that. They would rather you have Alzheimer's. They'd rather have you, you know, have less ATP and get on a drug, you know, drug re regime, you know, for, for, for the rest of your life and, you know, be on uh, uh, diabetes medication and everything else. Instead, all you had to do was take a multivitamin and a few key nutraceuticals every day. And you're going to, you're going to live a, a more, uh, a, a more healthy life. You know, it sounds like you can come back in and talk about food doing the same thing because, you know, those of you out there that want to grow some superfoods, goji berries is one of the easiest plants you're ever going to grow. And you can actually just go get one from somebody's bag. If you can find somebody who has those red berries, there's about 40 seeds in each one little tiny. So cut it up in four or five pieces and put it in some starter dishes. Once you get that growing out front, you're going to get a massive bush and you're going to get hundreds, if not thousands of those berries coming off. Mm. And, you know, why don't you grow your medicine too? And I think about everything that healthier foods, you know where it is, you've touched it yourself, but hasn't been chemicalized unless you put something on it yourself. You know exactly where it's coming from. And when you have that connection with the plants, I'm telling you, there's something else that happens there because you're going out and you're seeing them every day, you're touching them, you're taking care of them. There's a reciprocation back from nature for you in, in that whole energy field exchange there. I'll tell you so, the best, the best tomato I ever. Yeah, right. That's the best something right I've ever off had in my line. life. Wow! And, and How many you, times do you, you say that when you grow your food? Right, right, and it just melts. It just, it, 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 it it's, you know, when you buy something at the grocery store, the 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 tomatoes are like hard. You know what I mean? But when you when you're when you're growing your own tomatoes, they and you pick them off fresh, and you eat it, it just melts in your mouth. It just there's and it, it's the best tasting tomato. Um, but I I'm a firm believer that you know growing your own food gives you that kind of like uh, cycle of energy thing. You know you're you you're, you're spending the time to grow it to care for it, and it's reciprocating and providing you energy. 
at the same time. It's the cycle of life. And if you look at people, all right, now, it, it, some people that are listening to the channel, well, they're vegetarians, so they'll probably hate what I'm going to say. But, but, but if you look at Ted Nugent, all right, he's a, you know, a rock and roll star from Michigan, right? And um, he's a big hunter, right? But he's all about like bow hunting, you know, and, and going out in the bush and, you know, be out there for a couple of weeks and, you know, that kind of guy. And that's a big thing in Michigan to do is deer hunting. But you look at him, he's in his 70s, but he's got a lot of vitality, a lot of vitality. And, you know, he, he wasn't, you know, he didn't do any drugs. He didn't do drinking. He was a very straight laced rock and roll star. But what he, what he did, you know, what his protocol was, is being part of that cycle of life. You know, there was this, this, the hunter, but also the animal cycle of life. See, we've detached that now. But farmers are still part of it because they raise their own livestock and then they, then, you know, they, they eat part of their livestock. So, but most people in America, they go to the grocery store and they just buy their sliced chicken or their sliced beef or whatever, and they're detached. And because they're detached, they've lost that cycle of energy. Yes, they're getting energy from breaking down the protein, but there's I don't, know, I don't have another word other than a spiritual energy inside it. That if you buy it at the grocery store, it doesn't have the spiritual energy. If you grow your food, or if you raise your own livestock, or you're part of the hunting and gathering kind of cycle, you get that spiritual energy. It's hard to explain, but you know. But I, you see people that are involved in it, people that grow their own food, grow their own livestock. Or, or are you know avid hunters? You see that 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 spiritual energy in them. They don't have. There's something there that's different in their eyes than ones that only buy from the grocery store. So true. And as we move through these changing times, you know the supply chains not going to be as reliable. So the more food you learn how to grow, and the easiest, most nutrient dense foods, if you can move forward in that mind frame alone. Try to plant anything. Just try to grow anything you can, really. In the windowsill, out in the flower bed, you know, take maybe an ornamental plant out and replant with something food-wise. But this is the minute. We're coming into the, the, right now, if you are a fan of gardening by the moon, you know, we're two days from the new moon. So if you're going to be putting something in the ground, leafy vegetables, et cetera, this is the best time to do it. To grab that whole, not only is it spring, but we have the whole moon cycle coming in with the new moon. Now it's a little bit different with tubers and uh, you know underground potatoes. You want to do that after the full moon. But in terms of above ground kind of leafy veg right now, this is the ultimate time to put it in. Your results will be double or more if you plant right now versus if you try to plant around the full moon. It's just so you know again these cycles, cycling with the moon, the moon energies. I mean, if it can move an ocean, don't you think it can move some moisture or get a plant to grow deeper root? You know, these are the kind of things that we, again, we're back to the grandma. Hashtag think like your grandma, you know. Right. Have you ever, I haven't read it, but have you read The Farmer's Almanac? Yeah, I, I get it. And I also read that book, Gardening with the Moon, and I follow the moon cycles. Yeah, Almanac is a good one. There's two of them, though. The Old Farmer's Almanac and then just the Farmer's Almanac. And you got to split the two down there. So what's, what's the difference? 
What's, what's the big one? One of them is a different producer, a different publisher uh, that took it on and, and almost copied the same name. It's not nearly as good as the original. Okay. You got to go for the original because they still have everything and the dates and times and all that with right, there. Because right, right. again, they're following solar cycles, lunar cycles, and then our transition in the heavens where we are right now. I mean, it has been talked about since time immemorial. Every, all the legends, everything through prehistory, it all revolves around what's happening in the sky. And when we come down to the sun and we're just in our 400 year cycle right now, but they got 25,000 year cycles of procession of the equinox. So many people found it so valuable and so integral and so important for the survival of our species that we have been involved in cycles and have been recording and understanding cycles to help us grow and stay alive on this planet. And uh, I guess I'm going to leave it there because I'll go deep into the cycle stuff. Well, what's interesting is it's in, in automotive, in, in, uh, in machine, like uh, tool and die, which is a big thing in Michigan. But um, we have something similar, but it's not a farmer's almanac, but we call it the machiner's handbook. And the machiner's handbook uh, has all of this like esoteric kind of, not esoteric, but a little deep uh, apprentice type information that you would not necessarily get in an engineering textbook that, you know, that just was passed down from one machinist to another, you know, about, you know, different tools and different, you know, threads and, and, and uh, gears and, and stuff. So, you know, there, there are these little, these, there are these manuals that have been passed down from one generation to another that, that are really important to reference, but in, in the machine, the machine, What's it called? machiner's world, handbook, is that right? Machiner's handbook. Yeah. I wrote it's that either machiner's handbook or machinist handbook. Okay. But that was that was essential in tool and die, but it's very it's like our version of the farmer's almanac for tool and die. But uh, yeah, that I remember those days when I was in automotive. But um, yeah, I just I, people need to realize that they're trying to control you. They're trying to control your food supply. They're trying to control your your health. They're trying to control. Now your wealth. I mean, they're, they're, I honestly, I don't know about you, but I mean, for me, I would say I felt more wealthy in the '90s than now. You know what I mean? I don't know. I mean, maybe, you know, but it could have been that you know I was you know I, I was in automotive and that was very high paying and all that. But you know that that I just like, for example. I felt something happened after 2000 where no matter how hard you work, you were making less and less and less and less. The cost I of living those. was more. The cost of living, I mean, you're, I'm talking about net, not, 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 not gross, but you know, that the cost of living was more. The, 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 the amount of space that you had was less. The, 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 um, I just, I just remember the nineties being better than the now. Well, it was the flow of society too, with comp everything, you know, you flew an airline, then it was late. They gave you a upgrade or you got a free ticket to somewhere else. And there was just a lot more available free money to make your inconvenience not so inconvenient. And yeah, everything was just more fun at that time. I heard people growing up in the sixties and seventies talking about, how fun it was during their era. But it was the same thing, being able to travel around the planet, visit so many countries, 
I lived in Hawaii for a, a bunch of years during the 90s, and uh, everything was just so freewheeling, so off the hook, just rolling, uh, you know, and everything was, I don't know, just the, the way the style of life, it was all pervasive through the society. Everything was just abundant in the 90s through the entire society. Now it's very stratified and consolidated, yeah, yeah. condensed into droplets. Right. I, I agree. I mean, it, 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 it felt as though if you could imagine what you wanted to do, you could do it because you could find the resources to do it. Now you, that is becoming harder and harder. And it's so many different levels. I mean, we have more regulation, so that prevents it. I mean, um, just back in, back in the 90s, it was, you know, you could easily in Michigan, you know, start up a company and get tied into the automotive industry. Now it's hard, much harder to do that. It's, you know, and, um, I don't, you know, but yet yeah, technology back then, I don't know if you're familiar with com computers that much, but back then, I mean, I, I was on a silicon graphics station. So my computer was $150,000 back in 1992, right? But it was the only computer that had a real three-dimensional graphics card. Now the computers today have, you know, GPUs that are, that are similar to what silicon graphics was selling back then. But, um, but you still, even though it was a high dollar computer, there was, there was, um, there was a lot of opportunity to be doing CAD cam and doing, you know, uh, um, you know, be integrated into the automotive world. Nowadays, because everything's so globalized and, 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 and there, it's, it, it, the price, prices have really dropped and you're not, you're, you're competing with other countries that are, that are like a quarter of the cost. You, you, you lose that, those opportunities gone, have gone. So something happened like right around 2000, maybe 1999, where there was a, it opened up the floodgates of globalization and um, the, the entrepreneurial spirit and the entrepreneurial opportunities, at least in manufacturing, really dropped in, in the United States. Yes, so there were opportunities in, in California for, for tech, but. Well, small business kind of, that was the beginning of the dying on the vine for small business. And so maybe that's what made everything flow a little bit um, like more genuinely class. was everybody had their own small business that truly cared about the people around them. And all those small businesses, you know, disappeared in globalization. I remember I was living in Maui and when that first Starbucks had come, everybody was laughing going, oh, nobody's going to go there. We know everybody around here with their local coffee shops and it didn't even take six months and that whole thing was full. And what happened to all the other cool coffee shops? They weren't even on the beach. They were kind of in a parking lot mall somewhere and you could go have a coffee on the beach and then people would flock over to the Starbucks. Unbelievable. But I, you know, when it first came, we're like, no, that'll never have, nobody will ever adopt that here. This is Maui. Nobody's ever going over that. Sure enough, they did it again. How rapidly it onset, you know, right, tear down right. a piece of par paradise and put up a parking lot. I mean, sheesh. Yeah. And the same thing happened with Walmarts and the big box stores. Like my, like, here's a perfect example. We were talking about with the opportunities in the United States. So my uncle, uh, Jack, he unfortunately died at age 46, but he got into um, 
into uh, the hardware business, but it was like the real hardware business, not like the computer hardware business. So he owned a, uh, a true value hardware store. And this was in Detroit. Made a lot of money, but this was in the 70s. And once you had Home Depot coming in and Lowe's, it destroyed those, those franchises. So the big box stores, you know, the big box stores really destroyed those, those small businesses. Yeah. And you know, and then how's it going to recover? So suddenly we're back into this conundrum of an instant cutoff of all international trade pretty much and a complete shrinking of globalization. So anything coming out of China will be suspect for a decade to come. So will, will it snap back as quickly into, all right, the globalization's done. So there should be a flourishing of spring mushrooms of, local businesses popping back up again. And will it revert back to where we're talking about here, mid early nineties, uh, back into local biz, or will it be some kind of dragging on hybrid of the two? And I'm, I'm curious if we're gonna come back really local again. If we didn't have the control that we were talking about earlier in the show, you know, where they were, you know, doing the, the calling and, you know, and they're, you know, doing the surveillance and they're trying to control the society. Um, we would go back to something that was similar to the 80s, 70s, 80s, 90s. Uh, but unfortunately, we're not because they have this agenda of trying to control us. But there is going to be some hybrid that you're talking about where there's going to be what I call localization, not globalization. You know, I think, th I think the, the heyday of globalization is over. Me too. Like a lot of, a lot of the MBA well. schools were pushing globalization big time i mean i remember when i was getting my mba it was everything everything about jack welsh was perfect you know and jack welsh was all about <laughs> shareholder maximization yeah, yeah and shareholder maximization and you know expand your operations overseas manufacturing um and then just ship it to the united states you know for people to buy but the problem is is that if you do that if enough companies do that then you lose the economic clustering that takes place in the United States and you lose, you lose wealth. You lose knowledge. I mean, knowledge is built on innovation and you have to make things to figure out how to innovate. Well, if you're not making anything, how do you innovate? So we, would lo we're lo they, we were losing innovation and we were losing our economic clusters and, you know, and then you know, we were losing our wealth. And then, you know, the opioid, you know, addiction is highly correlated to, you know, reduction in economic clusters in the United States. And, you know, there, there's all these social problems that take place in that. But I think now uh, people are starting to realize that to prevent the, the social contract in a society from eroding, uh, you have to promote localization. And I, I think people are moving towards that. A lot of the things that you're promoting, you know, these concepts are, are a localization concept. You know, it's not a globalist concept. Globalist concept is, you know, ship it overseas and, and be dependent. You know, your, your ideas are more be self-reliant. It's about local. Decentralization. But, mm -hmm, mm -hmm, exactly. So I, we're moving into a new epoch of, 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 uh, of business where they're going to start down 
regulating the, the globalization activities and start upregulating the, the, um, you know, the localization activities. And then it'll build up economic clustering. But I am fearful that we don't go back to those better times because of this surveillance, you know, problem that we have. Um, I, you know, it's just, we'll never go back to those good old days, but we might be able to get halfway. Maybe. And, you know, part of the movement to this next phase of our societal evolution here, or whatever you like to term it, there's a thousand terms for it. Understanding that the world we used to live in is absolutely changed ED past tense about two to three months ago. And if you can start to come to grips with that in your mind that, well, we're into a new type of era, that the old one is done. And I think it would even be more of a change than 9-11 because the whole, you know, change in the security state and the buildup of the police state and the cameras and all the watch, that, that took a fair little bit to build up. It wasn't so instantaneous like this mm. is. So just the mind frame going in to understand we're in a new era. So just look at it as a brand new beginning. You turn the page on a brand new book. Chapter six just opened up. Page, you know, first page of chapter six is now, or ch chapter nine or whatever, three, six, and nine that you want to choose, right? Right. Now, I, we are definitely, there is a delineation. We'll look at this pre-Wuhan, post-Wuhan. We're just like it was pre-9-11, post-9-11. There, yeah, you know, we're, you know, we're right now in the middle of the Wuhan crisis, but that we will get out of that crisis eventually. How long? I don't know. I'm still concerned about, you know, secondary and tertiary wave within the next 18 months, but, but maybe that doesn't happen. Hopefully it doesn't, but there will be a time where we can say, okay, it's post Wuhan. Post what does post Wuhan look like? I don't know. I'm not really it looks sure. like about 5 billion people. <laughs> well, you know, but, but when I say post Wuhan, I'm not talking about just the Wuhan location. I'm talking about the whole world. You know, po you're talking about Wuhan, the global yeah, populace right. shrinking down to under five. Right, right, well. keep, <laughs> keep, uh, keep parity with the food production. So you're, you're thinking that for, to actually be in parity, you need how many people? We need minus two by 2024. Minus two billion. Yeah. And we need to go minus five by 2028. See, what's, what's, what's That's inconceivable. I can't even, yeah. it's so what's far your off. Take? What, what's I can't, your it's take? hard for me to even deal with it, like the numbers. So, you know, you're looking I at mean, these images of all these movies we've seen where they're piled up of two or 300 bags somewhere. And you're like, that's 200 or 300. Now multiply by another 100,000 or a million on top of that, right? Like, huh? Yeah, I know. No, that's a never, fraction of never. a fraction of a fraction. We're down into the one, one, one hundredth of one percent or one ten thousandth of one percent. When you're looking at some of these, you know, piles of, of, it's just incon inconceivable of, of losing that many billions of people because the food won't be here. Right. Right. We, we, we can't put our mind around it. There's yeah, you no really way. can. It's really, even if it's pennies on a table, you would have filled your entire house and your neighbor's house and the whole amount of pennies from your house overfilling completely to the neighbor's house using one cent pieces. If you went to a, like two billion one cent pieces, you would fill two 5,000 square foot houses and the yards between those two houses. That's how much, that's how many billions are. Mm -hmm. Hard mm -hmm. to even wrap your head around that. You know? Right, right. You know, and, and what's strange, what's strange is it's like, Okay, that's number of bodies, and we're talking about billions. But the numbers that, that I'm going to be talking about are even way bigger than that. 
just our economy in the United States is just under 20, 20 trillion. So it's hard to fathom that, but we're relatively shutting down minimum half the year, minimum. So we have just lost about $10 trillion of GDP. And think about that. That's a big number. All right, and now we think about the world. 10, and we printed another 10, right, so right. where are we going from there? Well, yeah, I mean, we're right to hell, right? <laughs> you know, and, and hyperinflation or whatever is gonna go on. I mean, who knows? I mean, there's no way. See, the problem here is, is the transmission mechanism. There is some backstopping that the Federal Reserve can do by printing money. But the thing is, is that in a normal recession, it's because of fear of, and, and it's, it's purely psychological. This is fear that is, there, there's a pathogen component to it. And the pathogen doesn't care about how much money you, you print. It's completely agnostic on that. I mean, it doesn't care. So the Federal Reserve can print all the money in the world. It's not going to stop the disease, right? So, you know, who, depending on how this plays out epidemiologically throughout the next 18 months depends on how much damage we're going to see to the economy. Just, let's just say that we only have one wave, one primary wave, and we don't have a secondary wave. A huge amount of the economy has been lost because we've been shut down. And it's gonna take a while to get that back. I mean, to fill the hole isn't gonna be like in three months. People need to realize if we lost six months of work, it's gonna take two and a half years to fill the hole. See, all that loss. Well, it's like stepping off a lifeboat that has a hole in it back onto another sailing vessel that's intact because to bring in cryptocurrency and move us over to a digital economy, demonize cash with the virus, move us into the digital wallets and get everything crypto-based, you need the complete evaporation. Nothing else will do. So to backstop a little while, because they couldn't do it instantly because that would be too much of a shock. I do believe central planners and you know, something about like Bank for International Settlements, down to the IMF, down to the Fed, Everybody goes, remove the Fed. Well, if you remove the Fed, you still got the ECB and the Japanese banks and all over Asia and everything else in between. I mean, you take that out, it would backfill with something anyway. But they're going to reset the entire thing, in my personal opinion. It won't happen now, but maybe wave two, wave three. If we go into lockdown a second time and then a third time, it'll be far too much for the economy to handle. Like, it just, the first one is shock. Okay. But if it goes into the second one in the winter, which they're already planning, November, of course, right at the election time, can, how convenient. But the second time during the winter, uh, I think that's, that'll be the, the final straw where people will be looking for alternatives because there will be very little work if it comes around 2.0. What we're seeing right now, people are making do. They're starting to move on a little bit. Uh, you know, all the problems getting the states open and whatnot, we're seeing a lot of pushback. But and when it comes down in the true flu season in November, December, uh, it's gonna have a whole different vibe because right now we're going into summer more daylight hours, people aren't as depressed naturally. So there's a whole bunch more energy, like the energy mechanics of it too, like gardening with the moon, like when you wanna prune something to make it die off, because a lot of times you get those nuisance plants that just whatever you do, or you cut them, they won't die off and keep growing back. Wait till the full moon, like two or three days after the full moon and prune them, those things will never come back. And it's the same way. Well, if you're looking at trying to prune society or grow a society or a, you know, manicure a society, well, this is the growth space where they're doing it wave one now coming into the summer, interestingly, but when you want to prune it and clip it and cut it so it never comes back, 
you know, coming into the winter time would be, that's exactly what you do, especially when you're off the full moon coming into this last week before the new moon, just like we would be coming off the summer. And if it starts in the fall, that's that last week before we come to the new moon in the December solstice, the 21st there. So, you know, whether it's a yearly cycle or gardening with the moon by the month, it seems to be that the MO is the same for clipping something to make it die on the vine because the, the resurgence of what they're talking about wave two comes right at that point where you would clip to try to make a plant never come back again. Interesting on the timing on it. If it comes back wave two in November, as they've already prophesied throughout the media for the last two weeks. I, I, you have, this is a unique thing that you're saying here that, that's, that I think you're right on. There's something weird that's going to happen with the oil market. Right. I think they're trying to destroy that, the, the, you, know, you know, yeah, exactly. But, but, you know, they're, they're, they're trying to destroy the petrodollar. All right. And that will usher in some sort of new currency. What that is, I have no idea. I, 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 I don't know. It, it almost seems like there's a, like they're pushing a global currency. Okay. But they have to destroy the petrodollar. That means that you have to destroy the oil derivatives market. And you're seeing it happen. I mean, I mean, you saw how could you have in the May contract a negative forty, <laughs> and then a, you know, yeah, I mean, that's great. That, that's just like it does Take never it happen. Take it and I'll pay you. <laughs> right, it just like it, that never happens. And so a lot of people that were long these, you know, these these contracts, um, you know, were their their funds were getting blown out because of margin calls, and there were huge margin calls. So if you had a contract at, at twenty, and it goes to negative forty. You're in such a hole, you, can't, you don't have enough money in your account to, to pay the margin, you know, the margin call. So they closed out the counts. So that, that was part of the problem. And, it, and because of that, there was no liquidity in that market and just dropped more and more and more and more until it stabilized. But um, it's something that happened during Lehman too. It, it was a, a, you know, there was a loss of liquidity. And that's why the bonds and the stock market were, were falling at the same time. Um, while normally they're negatively correlated, but, um, but the, there is, there is like this destruction of the petrodollar that's taking place, but they have to destroy the oil market. And what I don't understand is the geopolitical play because we're hearing the news. It's really a battle between Russia and Saudi Arabia and the United, United States producers. And the start of this crisis with the oil market was the battle between Russia and Saudi Arabia where they didn't want to cut. And they were just trying, trying to gain market share with China. Then all of a sudden, it seems as though Saudi Arabia is trying to deep six our wildcatters, the ones that are doing the exploration and, and, and the fracking and all that, and destroy our oil production in the United States and have those companies go out of business because they're near, if it's not backstopped by the government, they'll, we'll lose our, our, our energy production, a big part of our energy, not all of it, but a big part of it, especially the, the, the smaller players. So, um, you know, it's almost like there's some geopolitical move going on. So Saudi Arabia ends up being the major producer again. Now, what's your take on it? I mean, I mean, you know, there's well, something I don't going know. on. Mine there. might be a little bit far-fetched or a little bit maybe too much for people to handle. But with this grand solar minimum crop losses, if you notice where it's going offline currently, China, 
European Union, United States, Canada, there has to be another area on the planet that's coming online because nothing ever goes to zero. And currently that area is in North Africa. The problem is North Africa, Chinese have been there for 20 plus years building out infrastructure projects to the tunes of 100 billion plus. So if it's a contrived event with the oil, because you mentioned the big players, it's almost like they're working together. Start the war with China. That way they'll have no resupply going back over to Northern Africa because they have the stranglehold there. They got troops there, they got businesses there, they got rail lines, they got everything you could possibly think, hospitals, cities, and all these people under their thumb that they've been buying for 20 years. But if there's a war with China to start under the false pretense of what you're talking about geopolitically, oil, suddenly we have agri-politics, which is agriculture politics move on the chessboard. Because if China can't get resupplied in North Africa, their forces will be completely cut off over there, and they're gonna have to leave out of North Africa but see, you couldn't really start a guerrilla war over there and, and you know, fight face to face because China could just keep resupplying with a superpower like that. But if you start the war with China over in China, around China, in Asia somewhere, based on this oil, whatever it is happening, then uh, they lose North Africa. Well, that's going to be the new emerging grow zone to take over, double cropping. We could grow two crops per year. And that area, and the analysis I did already, you could grow more grains there than all of North America combined in North Africa because of the double cropping. But it involves using Libya's underwater or underground water sources, which is the largest in North Africa. It's called a primary water. And there's, they've mapped it out. There is so much water under Libya. It's just one vast, a couple thousand foot deep reservoir there that keeps refilling because of the Mediterranean, the porous rocks, like an oil well refill sometimes and you get put through the porosity with the, with the rocks the density, the porosity. And is it because um, the, they need, if the war were to start with China, North Africa gets free and the EU Unified Defense Force and the EU Neighborhood Defense Policy can go in and swoop North Africa. And maybe that was the reason immigration started to get all what would be the fighters out of there because you know it was predominantly male over the last seven or eight years they voluntarily exited. But if you go in and try to overthrow and take over that area with some of the most pristine grow conditions ongoing, on setting, because the amount of natural rainfall coming in North Africa is about 5X. And if you think I'm kidding, go look at the grain production coming out of Morocco, Tunisia, Algeria, Egypt, Chad, Mauritania, these areas are all getting bumper crops. Even Ethiopia and Sudan had record grain production. So that whole area there is getting incredibly wet. Plus, if you used the underground water resources from Libya, you could turn that into the world, one of the world's largest growing areas. Problem, China's there. Problem, grand solar minimums on setting. And we're going to lose an enormous amount of food, uh, you know, 45 degrees north and above coming, starting, well, it already started, but it's going to be intensifying through the next few years. So how do you get that grow zone out of China's hands? Maybe that'll make a little more sense with what's going on with the oil. Because then, then it could be spun anyway that China's the bad. China did the virus. China's with the oil. China's withholding exports. China this, China that, China banking, mm. China gold. And you keep hearing it again and again. Now go grab the grow zone. That's what I think their main prize is. Because I've been focusing on the grow zone for a while. Now think about it too. You've seen an enormous amount of these uh, human interest articles about all the locust plagues coming, swooping, eating everything. The only reason there's more locusts there is because there's more rainfall for more grass to grow. Place has been a desert for how long? Oh, wait, let's go back in time to the 
Fertile Crescent. Right. It used to be called the land of milk and honey at one time. And I wonder why. So maybe it's a couple thousand year repeating rain cycle. And again, if you knew the cycles, I'm telling you, it's all about the cycles. 400 year cycle in the sun, 2000 year repeating rain cycle. And once you start to peg these down, you'll know which areas are coming online. Now, my what, whole thing, well knowing. What's, oh, in, what's interesting what you're saying is, is that in the Talmud, it talks about what, what it will be like during the Messianic era. In, mm. in Jerusalem, and there is an interpretation um, that that Israel and that area will go back to what it was several thousand years ago. That it would be much more fertile mm. to allow for this messianic time period to happen. So this this goes right in line with what you're saying. Is that there are cycles, and this has been passed down for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years in the Jewish you know, thousands. Yeah. Well, yeah, thousands, but you know, but, um, but when you're studying Talmud, you're told this, that, 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 you know, that what they're describing is what it used to be, but what will it, it will be again that if, yes, it's a desert now, but it's coming back. But it doesn't explain the mechanism. It's just saying that it will come back. So, but you're explaining the mechanism, you know, that there's these cycles and all that. It's interesting that what you're saying is right into the, the folklore within the Talmud. Well, and again, if you want to look for a very specific spot that you're talking about, look at Mount Tabor, T-A-B-O-R. And all through that area right now, especially from Israel, Jordan, and going all the way up into Turkey, uh, everything is incredibly verdant and green at the moment. Even in Egypt, they're having record grain production naturally without using any aquifer water. And then you go over to Iran, they're at, they have the biggest floods ever recorded. Now, their records go back to the Silk Road trading days. Nothing ever this vast has happened even since that time. And we're talking about 1,500 years ago to now. They've never seen floods this vast. Even oldest writings never talked about it. Pakistan's getting incredibly wet. Afghanistan, rivers are flowing after 2,500 years. Harappa, which is another birthplace of, or a cradle of civilization, is that Indus Valley right there becoming incredibly wet again. So are we really there for the geopolitics, the terrorists, and the oil, or are we there to get the oil first, establish the bases, get everything ready to take over and start producing food in these areas is now the onset. So those last 20 years was about the oil, last 30 years, 40 years, oil, oil, oil. The oil era is over. So are we switching to an agricultural era? Because these are going to be the new grow zones emerging on our planet. Pakistan, Afghanistan, Western India, Iran, and then we come and jump over Yemen and Oman. There's lakes forming in Oman in the desert. Lakes. And remember, if you go back in history about 2,500 years ago in Yemen, they had a vast reservoir system there that everybody talked about how great it was. It was a lake in the middle of the, the desert and they had all these irrigation canals and it was a huge grain growing area. And you can go back to the Aksum Kingdom and talk about you know, all, those, all the trading going up and down in the Red Sea there and uh, the spice trade and the incense, the frankincense and all these things we heard about through biblical history, the spices, the incense. And then all that area, Sudan, all the way over to Western Africa, it's a massive shift in climate and we're talking on a multi-thousand year shift here. And it's on set. It's not about to start. Why do you think there's so many locusts? Follow the locust. 
follow the locust. Where the locust density is the heaviest, that's going to be the new pinpoint you know, area that the grain's starting first. It's interesting that you say that because a lot of the doomsayers, you know, the ones that are the apocalyptic types that are, you know, taking it right out of, um, of um, revelations, they're viewing the locust as a negative, you know, similar to the, you know, plagues of Egypt. But in essence, this is a positive. This is a sign of a shifting of, you know, of, of agricultural production. That if you use, if you follow the sign, like you're saying, that you would be able to, to, to understand how this whole geopolitical play is taking place. It's, it's very interesting. I, 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 didn't, I didn't know about the locust, you know, idea and that it followed because of the, the you know, the, the grass, you know, it's, that's, I always viewed it as it's a plague. Because I always think of you know locusts and it's Egypt and you know, you know, uh, Exodus and that, you know. But it's interesting that it's it's actually a sign of a of a changing environment, changing precipitation patterns. So, mm -hmm. think about this: when we look at radar loop maps, you can see where it's heavy red, where the thunderstorms are, and then it gets yellow, and then it gets green. This is think about the density of locusts during an area too, and we look at to see where the heaviest locusts are, that means there's much more grass there and vegetation than other places. So if we go out on like say the radar map and we see the heavy densest thunderstorms is at the red and you're like, hey, tornado warning and whatnot at the red and yellow boundary. Think about that because when they do mark the locusts, they use red, yellow, and green. So you can see where they are spread around. There's different locust map, FAO, which is a food and agriculture organization under the UN. They put out locust updates every month. So you can see where the heaviest densities are. And the heaviest densities on last reports were Eastern Africa at the Horn there, going up into Yemen, and then all the way over into the Indus Valley, specific hot spots right there at Western India and uh, Eastern Pakistan. Those areas showed massive, I mean massive, massive swarms by the trillions of locusts out there now. So see, so again, you're looking for the density of the precipitation increasing. So the more locusts means the more rainfall. So if me, if I was going to put a new grow zone, I would follow the locusts because there's more rain there. And that's where I would pinpoint to start my action of putting out a new grow zone. Mm -hmm. Let nature guide you. Mm -hmm. and, see, uh, I, was, I was always thinking that the United States was going to do some sort of two-front war on, on, on China. I wasn't sure if it was going to be let's say from the Pacific and then, then north with, with uh, some sort of uh, joint venture with, with, uh, with Russia, or if it was gonna be from, you know, from the Middle East. Because it seems to me that the Chinese are spreading kind of thin, going through the Middle East and into Africa. Similar to what was happening with, with Hitler, during World War II, he spread too thin. He went into North, North Africa and he, you know, he had the Western Front and the Eastern Front. He was a little too thin. China is, is gonna thin themselves out and they're not gonna be able to maintain um, positions in the Middle East and in North, North Africa. That's what the West is counting on. It's gonna be a double, a double front. I mean, you take on China over there in the Pacific, they're going to bring all their must. They're going to muster their resources home. Plus, everything's going to be cut off. They couldn't resupply Western Africa 
And if it was to be attacked through the Unified Defense Force, that's why there's this rush. Everything needs to be operable by 2023 for the EU Unified Defense Force. And don't call it a European army. That's the wrong nomenclature to use for it. It's a uni Unified Defense Force. So they could easily swoop in, have some you know, little skirmishes here or there, and take over that whole area from China. And China would just pack up and leave. They actually probably wouldn't pack up. They'd probably just run out in the middle of the night because that's what they would have to do under that kind of uh, bombardment and the emergency and insurgency that would happen in North Africa to get them out of there using local forces perhaps. But uh, I think China would be pinched on that side and they would let that go first and bring, bring their main um, you know, armaments home and try to you know, bring whatever they could home to try to defend. Although there you got 1.4 billion people, that's a large standing army. So are they willing to sacrifice how many in China to keep the North African grow zone? So these are the two things you need, because whoever controls that grow zone is going to control the society moving forward. Like think about it, whoever controlled the most oil, the oil resources and the distribution, refining, and then delivery of oil said products controlled the globe for the last century. This new century is going to be dictated by who controls the agriculture, the growing, the field, the production, the refining, if you will, uh, and then the delivery to the end user. Who controls agriculture this next century will control society. Mm -hmm. So and I don't think there'll be a petrodollar. There might be a, a digital currency of some sort, but it well, won't be I was thinking. Oil. I was thinking it was it, all right. The petrodollar is definitely dying out, but depending on who is the winner of this battle, all right, there may be something that's similar, but we would call it the agro dollar. Yeah, you know what I mean. So. You know, I we'll we'll have to see. I don't know. But when when you're talking about this uh, unified defense force, is does that does that integrate AFCOM from the United States into that? That I'm not sure. No, Dr. Graham Downing and Patrick Henninson and David Ellis. These are the experts on this. You know, I spoke with them at AV10, which is Alternative U10 over in London, and then I got a chance to speak with them again at AV11 in uh, London for a second time. And they're the ones who, see, they presented all their facts about this and they didn't know anything about my facts. And then when I presented, they're like, oh, you're gonna have a beer with us after this because everything right. just matched together. So I started to really wanna know more about this EU Unified Defense Force and the EU, England, the EU itself was the only thing standing in the way of completion of that massive interoperable force. No country would have its own guns or tanks or airplane, everything would interoperable between the entire forces. But the unified commander who was unelected, of course, but uh, the UK was the only thing standing in the way of that. Now, since the UK pulled out and Brexit occurred, threw a monkey wrench into the entire workings of trying to get this defense force up. Although outside of the UK, the entire thing is interoperable within uh, Europe and North African countries have signed an agreement to go together and they call it the North African Friendship Association. Mm. It's basically a unified defense force that straddles Africa, which was the old Roman grain growing areas. I encourage you to look a map around, say, 100 AD of the Roman Empire and take a look how they stretch through North Africa. Same grain growing areas that are coming online now, but now they have the EU army or defense force that can integrate. So they have the EU North American or North African Unified Defense Force but they need to get China out of there. So people that to get don't, the food, people that don't know for the United States, we have different regions of the world. And, you know, we, 
in this particular region, the United States has something called AFCOM. So, so they are, we have a military presence there to you know, watch things. Now, I would think that, they, that instead of having this unified force, uh, integrated force from Europe, that they would just leverage NATO. It just surprises me they're not leveraging NATO to, 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 to curtail some sort of event with China in this region, that AFCOM and NATO would, would work together to, to you know, hit this, this you know, area of the world you know, with China. And then our, then our US Navy would you know, attack from the Pacific region to prevent them from controlling the island chains. So you have a better strategic overview than myself. I'm more on the food aspect with that. You see, we're looking at it from different angles where I'm not an expert in this military they're, they're, type they of strategy. Related, they are related. I mean, oh, is it? Okay. Yeah, yeah, no, they're, no, they're the food. I mean, the thing, you're, you're dead right on the food thing. This is that the reason why we're going to have these problems is because of the food. And you got to watch, you know, you got to follow, you know, everyone's saying follow the money. No, you got to follow the food. And that's going to tell you where the next battle, battlefield is with this, this, um, you know, this um, uh, problem between the United States. Because there's a battle between the hegemonic power of the United States and China. They've already stated this, that they want more hegemonic power in, in, in 2025. And this falls right in line with your 2023 you know, time period, you know, and something's happening in the Middle East and something's happening in North Africa. Something's not happening like they planned in Europe because of Brexit. And we're already hearing kind of like this war drum between the United States and, and CCP. Loud and clear. Yeah, yeah. So we may see something in two years where there's a conflict between the United States and the CCP. It may not be, I see, I was originally before Wuhan, I thought maybe 2025 because they kept on saying they wanted to control the island chains by 2025. And I think that the United States, I think what Trump was doing is, is that you had to bring back steel, steel manufacturing to the U S to be able to build the Navy. So, He's upgrading the Navy for, I thought at that time, before Wuhan, for a 2025 conflict with China, maybe end of 2024, but I mean, somewhere around there. But everything seems to be sped up for whatever reason, but definitely we're, we're starting to see the, the, the war drums that are happening that I didn't expect to start hearing until 2024. So this, we may actually see the event, you know, happening in 2022 or 2023. And it might flare up first, not in the Pacific, which I was thinking, but it actually might start flaring up in North Africa. Yeah, the timeline's definitely sped up, and I'll agree with that. What you're saying now with the global lockdown wasn't expected until 2022 or 23, because the first food shocks would be there then, and we were predicting that the elite power that be banking cartels out there have already set up their grow zones and they're already set up their food forests and their getaway spots, but they don't want the common people running down on a thousand dollar air ticket 
and bringing, you know, a credit card with them. Like, hey, oh, is that your forest over there? Cool, I'm going to go eat some avocados that you planted over the last 20 years. So that the planet would be locked down at that time to, to stop all travel. But that, we, that, you know, that wasn't even coming for another two years. And then here, when it happened so suddenly, I was like, uh-oh, timeline sped up for sure. Right. Maybe it's a much more heavier, powerful cycle than a 400-year cycle. So maybe, you know, I kind of gave the information about this 2,000-year rain cycle in North Africa repeating. Perhaps overall in the entire planet, it's a 2,000-year or 3,600-year cycle, not just a 400-year. But since North Africa definitely showing signs of a 2,000-year repeat in rain cycle precipitation, maybe it's the entire planet that's going through such a shift that it'll be really uncontrollable and it'll really knock our societies back so far because a much heavier, more powerful cycle than a 400-year cycle would occur years earlier than what the 400-year regular period would be. Mm -hmm. So maybe there's something much more going on in terms of intensity that we weren't because John Casey told me one time, he asked me the question, he's like, you know, think about it like this. Maybe there's a much more heavier, powerful cycle overriding this, but just think about it. Cause I, he's like, I don't know either, but just think about it when you do your research moving forward. So maybe it is, maybe that's why the timelines have sped up because something is known about the intensity it, it, ramp up. It, it's interesting you say that because if you look at, let's say a, a curve, if you have, let's say a, a minor intensity, the base of that intensity wave, the base is smaller, okay? But if it's more intense, the base is gonna be larger. So that means right. that you're gonna start feeling it earlier as it's ramping up, right? So that, that makes a lot of sense to me. That, 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 that's very possible. Now, in terms of, of China, okay, we've, we've talked about how North Africa could be the breadbasket. In China, as we move towards 2023, is most of their land mass going to have serious agricultural problems? Or is it only certain areas that would have it? I mean, how really desperate are they going to be for food? Because they have a very large population. They need a lot of food to feed them. They're having fertilizer shortage and seed shortages in the country right now because that area around Wuhan is a huge grow, grain growing area for corn at this time of the year. When we get further north, we got the wheat in the combined corn and wheat growing areas in Heilongjiang. Now, if we go back to this, if we go back to the 1650s. It got so cold that they couldn't grow oranges down near Hong Kong. So this is the kind of shift that was anticipated anyway, just on the regular 400 year cycle. Now, since they're experiencing fertilizer shortages and seed shortages and farmers locked down and all types of non-repair parts, and they're having a difficult time with, uh, there's a lot of things break in China too with their machinery. What they're finding too is, because a lot of the factories were closed and the supply chains are still disrupted, Heilongjiang just got locked down. That whole province is locked down. That's the border with North Korea. There's a lot of disruption there too. And don't let the media fool you into thinking that they just pop back open and all the factories are running again. It's not even close to that. They forced the factory owners to go in to turn on the factories to show electrical production usage because on Zero Hedge, what they were doing was looking at the electrical consumption as a gauge to the economic activity within China. CCP government found this out or watches read Zero Hedge and said, oh, we could fake everybody out if we go turn on all the factories. So by law, the factory owners had to go turn it on, turn on the machines, whether there was anybody in there or not to try to fake out 
the uh, proxy data. Well, it's difficult to, okay, you can fake out the electrical consumption data, but you can't fake traffic data. So then suddenly this magically went offline. So then you had to use things like um, null school to get the sulfur dioxide concentrations and nit nitrous and different kinds of concentrations of uh, gases. They're having a very difficult time even trying to plant right now. And like I said, down near Hong Kong, it was too cold to even grow oranges in the 1640s. So they were looking, they're looking for major disruptions. And I'll, I'll tell you a factoid here too. I lived in China for years. I used to work there. That was one of my first jobs as a factory working in factory acquisitions is in China. That's how I know a lot about it. I lived there, I worked there. So over the last, say, 4,000 years, 10, 10 cycles of this grand solar minimum, not even one emperor's has ever lasted more than 400 years in the history of China. No dynasty has ever lasted longer. Now, within the dynasty, you know, you had the emperor and then they had the relative, you know, you keep the family lineage going through those four, three to 400 years. Not one has ever lasted more than 400 years. Why? Because we're coming into another time where they couldn't feed the people and the mandate from heaven was removed. So we're back at the 400 year cycle knows it. Now see, here's the thing. China knows it too. They know it for sure. Now it seems like she just lost his mandate from heaven to rule the people anyway, regardless of food shortages or not the way this uh, lockdown was handled in China. But that mandate from heaven's removed and it happens. So again, I was saying that if, China was able to get the food from North Africa. They could be the first uh, dynasty in history that ever bucked not falling during a grand solar minimum. They would be the first in history to do it. If they could control North Africa, if their string of pearls delivering the food back through uh, northern Myanmar, Jokpu port over into Kunming and that whole area in Yunnan province, if that were to stay intact on that trade route and they could control it, grow the food, deliver it, they could still survive. But the way they have now, they're going to go down hard. If they, lose, if they lose North Africa, they're absolutely going to collapse. So if you want to collapse a country, you could do that double-pronged approach you're talking about, war, conventional, but cut off their secondary food supply that they're counting on bringing up for lost production in the northern parts of the country, central parts of the country. And that's the best way I could put it out there for you. How, how, does, how does Russia fare through this, do you see, in, in well, terms I've, of agriculture? I've had a, a huge amount of people from Russia who like my stuff because I'm very just flat on it. I don't get into the politics. I don't get into the name calling. So people really write me a lot of stuff because I'm always like, yeah, Russia's got this. They've been really working with greenhouses an enormous amount. So I've been focusing on the agriculture production increases because they're in such a cold climate. So I want to focus on them because going into a cooler weather climate is the way we need to replicate and learn from other countries that are doing it right. Now, Russia's doing it right on this. They absolutely are like miles and miles and miles ahead of where we are in the States about cold weather agriculture, adopting geothermal greenhouses and underground tunnels to bring people down along with underground and indoor agriculture based on geothermal and redirecting light down through fiber optic cables and all other gamut of light resources and new types of all-in-one spectrum like Brad Buttrick at uh, Hidden Harvest got an all-one spectrum grow light. Well, Russia's been working with that too. Entire tunnels with grow lights in them, all underground. And uh, they are so far ahead of us. They literally have almost enough to grow what they need entirely during the winter time to feed their populace. Now, with that said, the above ground, you start to see in some losses in the Ural Mountains. And it begs the question why they grabbed, uh, you know, different parts uh, near the, in the Black Sea and, you know, what was that whole thing with Republic of Georgia about? And then when you come over here and, and you take a look at the different wheat belt growing areas, you know, you see a lot of 
where was the last incursion, the breadbasket of Asia, or the bread, sorry, the breadbasket of, uh, of Europe there? You know, I mean, you take well, it that's Ukraine, like, Ukraine. Yeah, yeah, that's it, right? That, that's the breadbasket there. That's the number one, or one of the number one producing areas for grain production. And notice that the uh, latitude's further down, so it's not going to be so heavily affected as further north. You know, Euro Mountains compared to Ukraine, are you kidding me? That's a night and day difference. So look where they're politically, where they've grabbed some areas of land. Mm. And it might make sense as to why just random happenstance they would grab Ukraine or they would have gone into Ossetia or go down and try to grab some places in Republic of Georgia back in the day. Inland water ports. Well, if you want to move food around through a continent, you're going to need inland water ports and control rivers as well. So this is, why sense. I, this is why I keep on thinking that just from a geopolitical play for, for U.S. national security, it makes more sense to align with Russia than with mm. China. But yet the powers that be like Kissinger and, you know, and others, they, you know, they kept on promoting this idea of the, the, the Chinese century. Well, the Chinese century theory doesn't coincide with the, the 40 year or the, the, the 400 year reign. I mean, she is on the verge of that whole society is on the verge of collapse. So this concept of the Chinese century doesn't have historical context. So I don't know. And these powers that are, they're writing this stuff like Kissinger and others, they know this, this food issue. I mean, Kissinger has been known use food as a weapon. Exactly. So, Perhaps you know, it's all a facade to, to make you redirect. Look right when we're doing something left over here, Chinese century. Oh wait, North African century you know what i mean maybe everything's been a, a distraction and, and just look in the mirror to see the 180 degree opposite that's interesting that's very interesting now how do you how do you see uh, australia handling this i mean are they going to get worse i mean or yeah no this is not my research this is uh kevin long if you want to do he, he puts out free reports by the way if you want to see the future of uh australian agriculture you want to go down to thelongview.com.au. I've done several interviews with him, great guy. Super knowledgeable about Australian uh, weather cycles. Again, he's using lunar solar predictive models and everything through past historical cycles, drought and rain. He studies stalactites on caves and drilling core sediments from the lakes around there for pollen count to see which plants were growing at which era. He's really got it wired for Australia. This guy is like, I've never, there was one guy who, who taught him who had died, but as far as I know, this guy's the number one in Australia. Kevin Long, you want to go check out his site. He's saying mega drought there for five more years and that Australian crop production is going to go to almost zero. Wow. Now he called it three years ago and everybody's like, yeah, yeah, it's raining more, global warming. But now look, second year of mega drought and Australia is importing wheat now because they can't grow enough. So he's right on the money with it. But he says five more years of extreme drought in Australia. So I mean, they're, 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 double, they're double hit. They're not exporting they're iron. Not exporting, they're not exporting it. iron or coal to China right now, and they, they're not making any, any food. Yeah. So you can see how it goes. Paul, I got to go in about just about five minutes here. I got okay. five left and I got to run. Okay. So um, what's the best way for uh, the subscribers to my channel to, to reach you? Adapt 2030 on YouTube. Appreciate you coming over there and looking at some of the information I have. And I love your comments too, because I learn a lot about comments from people saying, look here, I agree with that. I don't agree. That part seems right, but that other part's completely wrong or it doesn't make sense. 
that's, that's where I learned the most is people actually conversing with me. So I do try to respond to the comments and I love to have conversations. I'm always learning every single day myself. I don't know. I know almost nothing. I still need to learn so much more to try to put it all together here. And I have the podcast, Mini Ice Age Conversations, in the website oilseedcrops.org, where I take all my videos and then I turn them into PDFs with written. So I'll take the video, I'll take the transcript, and I'll put the images in there. And then I'll load that up as a post up on my uh, website, oilseedcrops.org. So those three, Mini Ice Age Conversations podcast, anywhere podcasts are hosted across the net, because I know everybody listens to podcasts, choose your favorite player site, and it's on there. And then uh, Adapt 2030 on YouTube. And thank you so much for everybody who out there who's one of my regular listeners. 99,800 subscribers. So I'm, two, I'm just a couple hundred uh, subscribers short of going over 100,000. So thank That's you awesome. for making that real. And yeah, Paul, I saw you almost breaking 50K. Yeah, here we come. <laughs> it's so hard to grow a channel. It, it, it's tough, you know, especially if you're shadow banned because of this content that we, you know, try to provide. But if I, I was doing cat videos, I would have been at half a million by now, but I'm doing stuff that goes against global warming narrative. So, right, exactly. Still pushing it. But I appreciate you coming onto the channel. And um, if you could provide me with all the links that you want me to put into the description, um, I'll put that in there when I premiere this. And then I'll also, you know, provide uh, the video uh, to you uh, for whatever, however you want to use it. But. Thank you very much, David, for, for an amazing conversation and an amazing amount of knowledge that you have with, with the subject matter. And, uh, and hopefully when you have time, you know, uh, I, you know, maybe I can come onto your channel or you, know, you can come back to my channel and, and continue the conversation. I really enjoyed it. Yeah, I as well. And I'm gonna repost everything here. And it just dovetails so succinctly. I mean, you got everything about the virus and the foods on top of it, because now there's being so much control within the virus to control the food, your movements, your freedoms and what you can access, where you can buy, where you can go. And it all, it all fits into the same timeline. So it's really interesting how your profession and my knowledge, even though they're completely unrelated, they are meeting exactly in the middle to explain on a wider picture and a broader kind of tapestry of truly what's going on in our society today. Exactly. Exactly. So thank you. Thank you very much for coming. And, uh, you know, we'll, we'll continue the conversation. All right. Thank you. All right. See you then. Bye-bye. <laughs>